Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Finding key players for your team can be challenging. Finding teams can be challenging right now. Jesus, we need sports to come back. Cafe Torres, COO, Dylan Miskowitz could relate. Needed to hire a director of coffee, posted his job on ZipRecruiter, found the best person for the role in just a few days. Four to five employers are posted on ZipRecruiter to get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. I wonder how Dylan Miskowitz's life has changed being in all these podcast ads. I wonder if he's like a celebrity right now. Uh, my listeners could try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Meanwhile, introducing the new Microsoft Surface Laptop 3 with its beautiful touchscreen, you'll experience stunning graphics with razor sharp resolution. Now available with a 13 and a half or 15 inch screen. And with the latest processors, there's no project the Surface Laptop can't handle. It's both light and powerful. You can get more done on the go. Visit surface.com slash laptop three to learn more. That is surface.com slash laptop three. We're also brought to you by the ringer.com and the ringer podcast network, where we still continue to crank out all kinds of content for us, including a new rewatchables podcast that's coming fast seven, also called furious seven fast and furious seven. Remember that movie? the most emotional movie for guys of the last 20 years. Shea Surround and I are doing that one. You'll be able to hear that one on Monday night. We also have a whole bunch of podcasts coming for the Book of Basketball podcast. Yeah, season two, mainly out of boredom and the fact that we couldn't figure out anything else to do from a content standpoint. Uh, we are going to redraft a bunch of basketball drafts, uh, an idea that goes way back to and I, I remember doing this in Grantland in like 2014. We've done it on the ringer a couple of times, but what the hell else are we going to do? So we're doing that. The first one is coming up in a little bit with Rosillo. We're doing the 1996 draft, but all of them will be running on the Book of Basketball podcast. So subscribe to that or refresh your subscription if you hadn't done it already. Uh, last thing, wanted to mention the World Central Kitchen is doing a ton of good stuff. Um, they're making sure that people can eat. They're trying to take care of restaurants and chefs. And you can go to wck.org slash chefs for America. Check out all the stuff they're doing there. They also did something really cool for the people in LA. Feeding the frontline fighting COVID-19 in Los Angeles, which they have a charity GoFundMe page. If you go to my Twitter feed, I donated a hundred thousand to this because the stuff they're doing, I love for a couple of reasons. One, they're trying to incorporate food from the restaurants, uh, to try to get them some business and keep them afloat. But more importantly, they're trying to feed 450 hospital workers and ICU and ER units and six hospitals in the LA area, all those hospitals, making sure that they could potentially have lunch and dinner while also, uh, taking care of the restaurants as well. I hope this is something that catches on in other cities. Again, look, you have the means to do whatever you can do. I think it's super important to try to keep our businesses and our restaurants and all of these different things going in, in, in any possible way that we can do it. So you can check all of that out. Uh, I was happy to help and hopefully you can help too. Coming up, Priscilla first, our even better friends from Pearl Jam.
All right, Sundays with Ryan Rossillo. You know, I was going to save this part of the pod until later and do a bunch of current event stuff first, but I'm the kind of guy, if I have a present, I just want to give it to somebody. Like, it was the same thing when I got engaged. I was supposed to get engaged with my wife at dinner. I had the ring the night before. We're in my basement, and I end up just kind of just saying, fuck it, and I gave her the ring the night before I was supposed to. I... I'm a guy who likes to hand out presents. This is a present. We are redrafting every single NBA draft from 96 on, starting today on this podcast. And then we're going through, we're going to run all of them on Book of Basketball, but one of them is going to be on Rosillo's this week. We have already banked 97, 98, 99. Rosillo was on a couple of them. And uh, and now we're doing this one. And uh, I, I, I didn't have to twist your arm to do this. I'll just no. say that. This is this is one of my favorite ones. I mean, all the different storylines of this, though. But you know how it's connected to you know Larry Brown coming to Philly the year after this, Cal being with New Jersey, and the whole Kobe storyline, Patino and the the back and forth of Larry Brown and that whole story, and then Patino comes in the next year, and all the money that those guys were pulling down at the time was like astronomical. Then Patino's contract was crazy, but all of that stuff is connected. And when you go through this, you know Iverson was clearly the number one guy, but there's when we redraft this, redraft this for real. Like, I wanted to go first because look, the number one is very obvious with Kobe, but there's a real question of of what, like, how far down should Iverson go? Like, right? How far behind some of these other guys, or does he automatically go number two? Because some people listening to this were like, look, Kobe one, Iverson two, and then the rest of the conversation. I'm not sure that that's the case, and the fact that it felt like the GMs. We're all like on Adderall that night and couldn't stop calling each other and making trades because you sent me that text. This this trade is absurd how loaded it is. And then some of the guys you even forget where they're in it. So it wasn't just this headliners. There's some real depth in this one, too, that holds up historically. Yeah. So we picked 96. It's it's one of the two iconic drafts ever, along with the 1984 draft. It's either the best draft ever or the second best draft ever, uh, depending on, you know, what you favor. But it's also a fascinating point with basketball because you have, it's still college basketball. It still feels like college basketball. You still have guys staying for two, three, even four years. Sometimes you still have the big coaches. The audience is still there. People still love it. And the product's really good, but you can feel things starting to shift and it shifts the year before when KG goes right from high school to the NBA. And in this draft specifically, you have Kobe's a high schooler. Nobody has a feel for what that means, where he should go. He's going to all these workouts. He's knocking people's socks off. And yet there's a real hesitation. It's not much different than KG the year before where he falls to five. And even though people are like, well, talent-wise, this guy's probably the best guy. Joe Smith goes four picks ahead of him. Um, but you, so you have that. The one and done stuff is really starting at this point. Antoine wins the title at Kentucky and just comes out. He's... He's, he's just done. That's it. He's, he's ready to go to the NBA. He's 19 years old, ends up going sixth in this draft. But you see, these worlds are colliding. College basketball is really about to change. We don't fully understand that yet. We still have a lot of history with a lot of these guys. And within probably four years, college basketball just kind of starts to turn into something else. It's not the same kind of talent pool. It all starts with this draft. What else do you remember about 96, just from a big picture standpoint? Okay, so the KG stuff the year before is, is probably one of my favorite things in that we do this 
we do this deal where it happens a lot in college sports, but I think it's overall just in this in this way we navigate through things. When things are new, when things are different, and it's not the norm, we're like, well, wait a minute, you know, what are they doing? Like, I don't really like this. Um, I remember in the '80s, if a kid left after a sophomore year, you're like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, who's he think he, he is? And 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 all of this stuff, like, oh, he might not be ready. And it's like it's not you're not drafting to be ready. You're drafting for what somebody could be. And this is, as you said, it's part of that transition. The media, and it's not just media, sports fans, and sometimes selfishly, college sports fans, th- this is an, a, just a ridiculous um, pattern, but people seem to care about other people's education levels way more than they should, especially when they're people you're never going to meet. So when yeah. KG was going to jump straight from high school, and really we decades removed from guys doing it before, it's like, who does this guy think he is? One of my favorite lines that I've repeated a million times was Mad Dog, Chris Russo, doing radio, and I would listen religiously to he and Mike and the dog, and he's like, well, maybe KG should just play the home games and not go on road games, and you're like, wait a minute, but this was, like, he was challenging things, So, but at that time, it was like, well, at least KG's like a seven-footer, and he's a big man, because if we've ever had it happen before, you know, Moses Malone, some others, it was going to be a big man that would do it, and for Kobe to come into that year's draft in 96 and be a perimeter player, it was immediately met with resistance, because we didn't have access to any of these legendary workouts. The only people that really knew how good he was were either himself, his family, or the people that got him these workouts, and yet he still almost goes outside of the lottery, because it was just hard traded. to think. Right, right. And honestly, the way he got traded, we'll go through all that kind of stuff. It was all kind of navigated with agents. I also think, too, that's important. Agents at this time, I feel like are far more powerful with positioning who goes where in the draft and what happens and scaring teams off. I think the agents in the 90s had more power when it came to the draft than they do today. And there's real resistance to all of this at the time. And that's the hardest thing to explain. I think if you watched a Fab Five documentary that we did for, uh, it was not really a 30 for 30. It was for ESPN. It was that weird stretch when we were making 30 for 30s then we're calling them. I still count as a 30 for 30. I watched it with my son recently because my son just knows Jalen from the guy who's come over to my house and the guy who's my friend. And he was like, was Jalen a, nice. a good basketball player? I'm like, yeah, Jalen was like an icon. So we watched that Fab Five thing. And you can really feel it in that. And I highly recommend that as a rewatch for people where, you know, five freshmen starting was inconceivable. Um, freshmen carrying themselves the way they did. There was like this real sense with the old school college basketball community that they were losing control of this thing where it's like the NCAA, college basketball, college football, all of it, we're in control. These kids are playing for us. And Starting with that Fab Five, things start to flip and the whole infrastructure is now in danger. And it's all leading to this 95 and then especially the 96 draft where it's like, all right, now these kids are going to use you just like you're using them. They're going to leave after a year. They might not even go to college anymore. When we, when I was growing up, it was Moses Malone and Bill Willoughby. You always heard those two, the guys in the mid-70s. Moses went straight to the ABI out of high school. Uh, Bill Willoughby the next year went to the NBA right out of high school, never really made it. And then Dawkins ends up on the Sixers and had a pretty good career. And then it just gets shut down uh, for until KG. And there was still that weird attitude that you just mentioned and tapped into of people being really dismissive and untrustworthy of talented guys coming in too young. Like we were protecting them. I'm not sure what we were protecting them from other than just 
making more money right away, right? You think about Patrick Ewing, he should have come into the NBA after one year at Georgetown. He made, he lost three NBA seasons because he's played he played four years at Georgetown. Was it worth it? I don't know. Well, it was also the norm. You're right, but John Thompson's the type of guy that like had so much power back then that Patrick Ewing wasn't going to leave early. No, you know, I mean Walter Berry left early, and I remember being like, "Oh, it's, you know, okay, whatever, he's ready to go." And Walter Berry's one of the guys at St. John's who I I loved and thought, "Okay, well, he's going to be a star," and it didn't really work out. And then that would always happen because then I started to become like, "Hey, all of these guys should bounce." The sooner you can get into the league and and prevent them from finding out that you can't play, go ahead and do it. Um, and you'd be surprised, like you would think most GMs would have wanted there to be players in college longer to have more of a sample to watch them. But over the years, most of the guys that I had talked to said, you know, you just should be able to come right out of high school. would rather get him in here. And as far as like getting into trouble and that kind of stuff, I think there's kind of like three categories of people. All right. There are kids that have it figured out and understand and, and are far more mature. And I think sometimes when you're a kid in high school, that's going through that kind of spotlight, like LeBron James was already mature beyond his years because he had been in the spotlight for such a long time that he kind of understood what was being asked of him. And if you think about like the blueprint for wanting to just nail it, at least to how you're accepted socially, it's LeBron James. KG was one of those guys in a way too, not as out front of the face of a franchise, but KG just kind of knew how to, to make it work. Like he wasn't going to be a bad kid where yeah. other people like the other category is, is kids that are just bad kids. And I don't care if you're going to the pros out of high school or after one year of college, you probably didn't get into trouble because you left for the pros too early. You probably got into trouble because you were going to get into trouble no matter where you were. And then I think there's the kids that do something wrong, adjust, and then never make that mistake again. So I, I, there, there was all these things always put on it. And I think we do this all the time, like in general stuff, like eBay. I remember when eBay was first announced and guys are like, wait, what? You're going to put something up for sale and then people you don't know are just going to bid on it and you're going to trust that they're going to pay for it? Well, that's fucking stupid. And it works. Like, think about ride shares. Wait, so my my daughter is going to, some guy, some asshole is going to drive over some stranger in his Prius. He's going to pick my daughter up and he's going to drive her to the mall. Well, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. And then it ends up being this unbelievable, successful company that people try to emulate. So I think when it comes to sports, like even if you did it for the NFL and said, well, what if kids just came straight out of high school? Yes, I think the first thing is you worry about the physical development of some of these guys. But is there any version of it where if guys came out of college football earlier that we would go, hey, you know what wasn't a big deal is having a quarterback leave after his freshman year and get some pro coaching and become a pro a lot earlier than another two years playing at the college level. And that's and where this started, these two years. For running backs, that would have been great too. So when I was a kid, the 1980 Celtics, Bird's first season, they, lo they lose to Philly in five. But Red Arback had made this trade and they had the number one pick because he had traded Bob McAdoo and, and had this future number one. It becomes the number one pick in the whole draft. And they know this. Sampson has just finished his, his freshman year at Virginia. And Sampson is the lost uh, sure thing from the 80s and 90s. Basically, you're talking Shaq, Ewing, David Robinson, uh, Hakeem. Well, Hakeem, yeah. Hakeem, and then, I mean, Hakeem, Hakeem was, Hakeem I remember and, the first tanking article I ever read, I was in elementary school, and I was like, what are the Rockets doing? Like, right. I'm serious. It was crazy. And I was in sixth grade. So Samson was like the fifth of the sure things from the 80s and 90s. And Red Arback wants him to come out for the draft. And he's kind of lobbying for it. And people are getting mad at Red Arback. And, and you know, there's this, people come back at him going, well, what's, what's nothing's more important than an education? And, and Red gets in trouble. He goes, 
what's the kid going to become a doctor? Like he's an NBA player. He should come out right now. <laughs> he's seven and four. He's, and he's trying to, you know, and it's a really good what if, because if he comes out, Samson was just unbelievable. His knees started going on him in the, in the mid eighties. But if you think about it, he spends three more years at Virginia and then ends up on Houston. That's a lost year. Hakeem shows up. By the time he, you know, it's five years later before he's on a decent team, he could have gone on that Celtics team with all that stuff. So anyway, we go through the 80s and basically to the KG moment. And that's when that part starts to flip. The other thing was Iverson was already really polarizing heading into that draft because he had gone to jail for the bowling alley thing. We did a 30 for 30 on that whole thing too. It was really messed up. He got an it was so messed up that he ended up getting as much trouble as he did for that it, specific incident. That's right. what I mean. He right. he he got completely railroaded and then he got eventually got pardoned. He goes out, ends up ending up at Georgetown. And he's super fun to watch that one year in the Big East, back when the Big East was still a thing. And at some point, it becomes the Allen Iverson draft. And he's clearly going to go first. They don't win the title with him at Georgetown, but still really fun. And it's a loaded draft. And you mentioned all these all these dumb trades that end up affecting the draft in all these different ways. I can't emphasize this strongly enough. If you don't think NBA teams knew what they were doing in 2019 and 2020, and if you think we had some bad GMs and dumb decisions, let me take you back to the mid-90s because it was an a apocalypse of bad decision-making, and a lot of them all crested that draft. What was your favorite trade of all the trades I mailed you? Because I had forgotten, ML Carr actually won a trade with uh, <laughs> ML Carr heading into that 96 draft. I think that, I think, oh yeah, he did it the week before. He traded Eric Montross and the ninth pick to the Mavericks for the number six pick and a future pick, which became the sixth pick in the following year's draft, which could have been Tracy McGrady if they had done the right thing. but. Uh, that enabled him to move into number six and take Antoine. I think if they had stayed at number nine, I actually do think they would have taken Kobe. I know that's a, you know, Wait, crazy what? ass. Based on what? I do. Because he worked out for the Celtics and like they loved him, but they weren't going to take him at six. But I think he, there's a picture of him online with him in the Celtics t-shirt and they made yeah, a big deal after that. about how much, how how impressed they were by him. Six was too early. Nine to 14 was kind of the Kobe range for this draft, right? I think anything earlier than that would have seemed obscene, but apparently the Nets were going to take them too. And they, 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 Calipari, I think, overruled whoever else or vice versa. I can't remember the story. Okay. Well, a couple of things. Um, Iver you know, Iverson was there two years, right? Because it was that, yep, that showdown with, with Ray. I look through this and go, my man Lorenzen Wright there, seven to the Clippers. Um, Kittles ends up going eight. So I, that's the thing I spent the most time on today, going back over what Cal said. You and I both know this. There is no survival instinct stronger than the GM years removed from the decision that didn't go his way. And Cal, what happens a lot of times is if somebody miss, misses on somebody or trade, they'll tell you how badly they wanted them after the fact. Yeah. And then they blame everybody else for it. Um, Let's let's take Cal at his word here. So <laughs> I'm not sure we should, but let's <laughs> let's do it as a as a thought exercise. Okay, so they've got the eighth pick. They've worked Kobe out, I believe, three times. Fairly Dickinson and yeah. Calipari's losing his mind. And John Nash, who was, um, I, I this is one of the 
biggest dickhead moves I've ever done on a live show. But I was so upset when the Sixers traded Moses Malone and the number one pick that was going to be Brad Doherty because I couldn't wait to see Barkley, Moses Malone, and Brad Doherty. Well, Barkley um, was your guy. And Barkley was my guy. So I was like, that's insane. Like, Barkley's going to play small forward because he could have. And instead, they traded Moses and Terry Catledge, I believe, for Jeff Ruland and Cliff Robinson, the one from the Harlem Globetrotters. And then they traded Awful. the pick for uh, Henson. Yeah. Right? Yep. They so, traded the Doherty pick for Henson. Yeah. Doherty pick for Henson. Now, I'd heard years later, years, years removed, that they wanted to get Moses out of Philadelphia. Um, but that's what they ended up with. They ended up with two bigs from the Bullets and Roy Henson, who was always hurt all the time. And so John Nash was the front office guy at that time. Now, Nash ended up being the GM of the Trailblazers when they did the uh, Martell Webster pick when they moved down. You know, it was the Chris Paul, Darren Williams draft, Deron Williams. Um, and I was on a Philadelphia Comcast show where I was in Boston and Nash was on the panel back in Philly. And I was like, well, you know, whatever they were talking about, I was like, it's not as bad as trading Moses in the number one pick for Henson and some bullets. And everybody else on the panel was like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so I later apologized to John and he was actually really good to me um, because later on, like I said, he was in the league. But the reason I bring that up is that Nash was the one going to Cal saying we have to take him. And Cal's like, I want to take him. Cal had dinner with Kobe's parents the night before the draft. Okay. And Joe Bryant saying, rookie of the year, all-star second season. And Cal's like, here I'm thinking his father's delusional. And at the same time, like he was totally right about him. And then Arn Tellum calls up and says, if you take Kobe at eight, he's going to play in Italy. You just took this gig. You're fucked. And Cal was like, look, I can't do this in my own building. I can't screw this one up. And then David Falk, who had all sorts of juice back in the 90s, you know that as well as anybody, called and just kept hammering on the Carrie Kittles thing, the Carrie Kittles thing. And so the next day, they have lunch. Calipari tells Nash, I'm not taking Kobe. I'm afraid he's going to go. I can't get this wrong. You know, Arn is on my case about Kittles. And Joe Taub, who was the owner of the Nets at the time, went to those two guys and said, I want John Wallace instead out of Syracuse. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, look, Cal clearly was enamored with him, but I always wonder when we start talking about stuff that happened 20, 25 years ago when it's a bad decision, like how often people will make excuses for something that went bad. It's pretty much human nature. Well, I remember the famous Celtics draft when they took Joe Johnson, Kedrick Brown, and Joe Forte 21. And I already know what you're going to say here. Well, they made a big point of being like, you know, that was Red's pick. Red really loved him. I just Red was like in his mid seventies at that point. He was, you know, the old guy. He they were he was in the war room out of basically respect, and that's it. wasn't like he was burned in the game film at night. And I just have always refused to believe that Red was in control of one of the three first round picks at that stage of his life. You know, the way it was told to me, it was like he had a he had a gun on everyone in the room. Oh yeah, well, like you're taking once, Forte because of the relationship with the high school coach. Once Forte didn't pan out, that's exactly what happened. So here is the draft, just for the people listening who don't remember this sequence. Philly is first; they take Iverson. Toronto is second; they take Marcus Camby. Vancouver takes Sharif Abdur Rahim, who um, was a very, very highly regarded prospect and was a huge high school kid, and that was actually a pick that made sense. Stefan Marbury goes fourth to Milwaukee. Ray Allen goes fifth to Minnesota. They end up flipping picks. Antoine Walker goes sixth to Boston. And I remember at the time, didn't have a lot going on. Uh, 
I think that was the summer I started bartending. Really being convinced this was a six-person draft. So when ML, who was a moron, the uh, and the M standing for moron when he was a GM, when he trades up into the top six, it was like, this is great. This is a six-player draft. It's impossible to move into the top six when it's a six-player draft, but they pulled it off. Clippers are seven, Lorenzen Wright. The Nets are eight. They take Kerry Kittles, who's better than people remember. But man, that Kobe thing is tough. He just Dal- hurt, man. I mean, Kittles' thing was injuries more than anything else, right? Really. Dallas uh, is nine with Samaki Walker. Indiana takes Eric Dampier ten, and then we have an incredible combo here: Golden State eleven, Cleveland twelve. Todd Fuller, Vitali Patapico, and then the next five picks: Charlotte, Kobe Bryant, Sacramento, Pace, Pages Stoyakovic. Phoenix, Steve Nash, Charlotte, Tony Delk, Portland, Jermaine O'Neal. And as we, as you're going to see when we redo this, this draft, um, and I, I did in 2014, I wrote a whole piece. I redrafted every draft for 20 years for Grantland with the point being, um, this is a crapshoot. Why do we throw ourselves into these drafts so much? There is no rhyme or reason to any of this. This is probably the all-time example uh, where you have a couple blue chippers that we knew were going to be good and then some guys out of nowhere that become transcendent Hall of Famers. Steve Nash, 15th pick. Santa Clara. Uh, do you remember where you were when you, when you saw Nash get the hat and come across the stage? Do you remember where you were in your reaction? Because I do. I just remember instinctively rooting for him for some reason because it was like, oh, there's a white Canadian point guard who just went 50. I knew nothing. There was the other thing in '96 was we had no YouTube, we no. had no big boards, there was no not even the person two people before Chad Ford. There was really nothing. You just had talk radio <laughs> and you had people going, I, I really like uh, Antoine Walker. And I thought he was really good in the March Madness. And that was like our college basketball opinions back then. We just yeah, that's know. it. I mean, you, you, the internet wasn't, and I, I feel like we repeat ourselves on this, you know, whenever that comes up, but it just, unless you watch a Santa Clara game live, you, you didn't know what the hell was going on. So at first you're like, who's the intern? You know, what's going on here with Nash? Well, we then- remember how much we would rely on the little clips after the guy got picked. They would show. Right. And what, I remember 20 seconds of highlights. And I, I saw his clips, but like, you know, the NFL draft is always hilarious to me because, you know, going to that live maybe once and God bless you if you do. And maybe if it's just say hey, you and your boys, guys week or weekend or whatever it is. And, and you, but you have to admit, even today, 90% of the guys being announced, you haven't watched one fucking snap of. OK, and so what you do is you talk yourself into because of a article you read or a clip that you see some defensive lineman or some guard. And really all you want is just fantasy guys. So you can have fantasy guys from your favorite football team. But now we're so updated. Like, I think it's so funny that the NFL draft is still kind of this outdated thing. Cause most guys aren't going to sit there and start watching guard film going, eh, there could be a couple guards of available 20, but that's what we were doing. We were blind in 1996. And then I was, I was back home that summer. I was at a buddy's house. I was like, look, I don't care what the plan is tonight. Like, I'm watching the draft, and then I'll meet up with you guys after. And they were like, you're seriously going to watch this whole? I was like, of course I'm going to watch this whole thing. And uh, his clips, when they fired him up, I'm like, whoa. Like, who's this guy? Where's he been hiding? But it still seemed 
you know, like who is Steve Nash really going to be that good? It just it was such an unknown. And to see his clips, it was just, you know, I was in college still. And I just went, wow, like, I wish I had seen this guy play. I love the draft my entire life. I remember when they did not televise the draft. And what year you had, was that? So I remember the there's, there, I'm going to say early 80s. I think they started televising it somewhere in the early 80s. But I remember one year the Celtics had a couple second round picks. One of them was Tracy Jackson they took from Notre Dame. But I remember listening to that draft on the radio because it wasn't on TV. And it's one of the local sports stations or radio stations was wow. just just running it. And it was like, uh, with the 31st pick, the Celtics take Tracy Jackson. <laughs> and then at some point, at some point they realized they should start televising it. And it, in general, they real they realized what they had stumbled into around the Samson Hakeem Ewing era. When, so before the Ewing thing, that was when they added the lottery. They, they at some point realized that there was a televised spectacle that should be happening, which really wasn't much different than football. I don't think football was showing the drafts either until 82, 83. And that's cable is the reason we started having televised drafts. But I loved it immediately. I used to watch them, used to go over to my dad's house. Then eventually when I started writing, I would do draft diaries for my old website. But even before that, we would, we'd be talking about the draft for days. And the reality was there was no information. And you were talking out of your ass 90% of the time with all of these guys. Now we're only talking out of our ass 50% of the time. I remember going back and, and researching some of that stuff. And that was a, that was a 10 round draft. Like they would do 10 rounds and red Arback would take like whoever went to Holy cross. He would take right. his plumber's cousin. And I remember like I'll, years later, after you realize this, cause as a kid, uh, I don't know how often this ever happened to you. It happened to be very rarely, but you would go, oh, you know, because my father was, you know, a carpenter or builder or whatever, and we would go and work on some of these people's houses. And then I remember this one place we were doing a deck and the guy was probably on the vineyard summer house and like, well, you know, uh, Tom here was actually drafted by the Celtics. And at that point, like as a little kid, you go, oh my God, you know, like <laughs> what's Larry Bird like? Are you a millionaire? And all these different <laughs> right. things, right? And then as I got a little older, I was like, yeah, but what round though? Did you like, did you play at Merrimack or something? And you were just like a local 10th rounder and never played. And the guy was like, yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I was. Yeah. That was, <laughs> so, the Celtics. Like, I, just, I just, I really like, Hey, he was drafted by the Celtics. I'm like, yeah, but like the fake pick. Cause you were a local kid. Like don't tell strangers that they used to do the last seven rounds. They would just take kids from Brandeis, Holy Cross. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Boston university. Yeah. That was the move. Yeah, the 10 19 rounds. Think about that. 223 kids were drafted in a 23-team league in 1981. So I listened to the 1981 draft on the radio. The Celtics had the 23rd pick of the first round. They took Charles Bradley, who could dunk, and that was it. Second round. Wyoming. Tracy Wyoming. Jackson, 25th, another miss. And then... Are we going to start doing third or fourth round misses from 81? No, then Danny Age, 31st. Oh, there we go. And I and I remember on the radio, they were like, yeah, he might play baseball, but you know, Reds had some success. John Havlicek almost played football. And it, it was like one of those, nobody knew anything. They didn't know what was going on. Wait a minute, on. did they reference the other guy who played pitch for the Braves? Who was Oh, it? Gene uh, Conley. That Gene, was another Gene one. Conley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. he took Conley 400 years ago. Well, you had in the 80s, you would just have Red just making these trades where he knows Kevin McHale is going to be better than Joe Barry Carroll and trades back two picks, but then picks up the number 13th pick as well. 
Yeah. He's like, ah, we'll give you number one. And and they're like, cool, we'll have the number. And they and people are just getting pillaged. By the 90s, um, people are still getting pillaged. But this, I'm gonna read all the trades for the for the listeners because there's right. some classics in here. So draft night, Bucks trade the rights to Stefan Marbury to the Timberwolves for Ray Allen and a future first round pick. I would say the Bucks won that one. I mentioned the Mavs Celtics trade. Here's another one. This is one where everybody who loved college basketball knew Jalen Rose was going to have a moment in the NBA. There was just, he was getting buried in the nuggets. I never gave up. He was just too interesting of an offensive player and always was better in big games. And it was just hard to believe he wasn't going to make it. The Pacers trade the number 23rd pick along with Mark Jackson and a getting old Ricky Pierce to the nuggets for the 10th pick and Jalen Rose and Reggie Williams, who was a former top five lottery pick. So that was a steal. Uh, Is that Georgetown Reggie Williams? Yeah. Yeah. So then you have this other trade where you have uh, two summers ago, the magic trade, the the, future draft pick and Scott Skiles to the bullets for the 42nd pick. So trying to clear cap space for Horace Grant. So the Wizards somehow end up with the 11th pick, but not for long because they traded that with uh, two other first rounders and Tom Gugliotta for Chris Weber in 1994. So you have all that in there. And I met Goods. Have, He's a nice guy. And then you have, they also traded the number 12 pick for a fairly washed up Mark Price that year too. So the Bullets went from having the 12th to 13th pick to no picks. And then you have a couple other ones. The Heat traded the 16th pick in the Alonzo Morning trade when they traded, uh, when they traded for Alonzo Morning. The Pistons traded the number 18th pick with Dennis Rodman for the 26th pick in Sean Elliott in 1993. So that one moved. And then uh, we have a Kevin Willis and the 19th pick for Steve Smith and Grant Long trade from two years earlier. But then my favorite one, the Heat in September 95 sent the 19th pick and $1 million to the Knicks for the right to hire Pat Riley. I would say that was a great trade. Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna have do the right that, guy. You do that again, right? The Riley Nix thing was crazy. That's its own podcast. Contentious. Yeah. And the, uh, and then New York fans were really, really hurt and angry. Yeah. So Rat um, Riley signs everywhere. Is it rhymes? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're gonna redraft, but wanted to mention a couple of things. I ranked I did this in the Grant Uncommon. I'm just going to keep it here. A five-star system for how good the player was. So super duper star. You have to be like basically a Hall of Fame pyramid pantheon guy. That's five stars. All-timer is four stars. Franchise guy is three star. All-stars, two stars. Quality starter is one star. So this draft had a super duper star, Kobe Bryant, five stars. It had two four-star guys, Nash and Iverson. It had a three-star guy who's almost like a three-and-a-half-star, Ray Allen. Two two-star guys, Jermaine O'Neal and Ben Wallace. And then four one-star guys, Dyakovic, Canby, Marbury, and Walker, which means they were, you know, starter, borderline all-stars. And then Zadrudis Elgaskis, Sharif Abdur-Brahim, and Kerry Kittles, who were all, like, really serviceable starters. So 13 guys who not only uh, made valuable contributions, but got paid 
and you mentioned this earlier, this draft class made so much money. It was, <laughs> it's probably the biggest windfall of any draft class up to that point, right? I mean, what Kobe did, like he was making 24, 25 when the second highest paid player was making 18 or 19. So Kobe got hooked up in this deal. Jermaine O'Neal made a ton of money here. Camby still played 17 years. Nash played 18. Ray played 18. You know, Ray yeah. had like two max deals, I think, in there. So, yeah, I mean, Nash, who did incredibly well for himself, wasn't one of the top five highest paid guys in this class. I added up the math. Kobe Iverson, Jermaine O'Neal, and Ray Allen made more than $825 million combined just playing basketball, just in salaries. They, Wait, they say that it. again. Kobe Iverson, O'Neal, and Ray Allen, just those four guys made eight, over $825 million combined. <laughs> And this was the era when, in 99, when they had the lockout, all of a sudden, anybody who was three years into the league could just redo their contract and sign some six-year giant deal. Um, you had Marbury, Abdurrahim, and Anton Walker all sign max deals. Canby, Ogaskis, and Nash, Nash, multiple big money deals. Kittles made over $55 million, which I didn't realize. So uh, just... Money all over the place that um, that it really hasn't been topped. Um, the other thing I did here was I, I created a Simmons crapshoot rating called the Scrap to see just how much of a crapshoot each draft would be. So we're going to be using that going forward. This was a 10 out of 10 just for like when you look back and you just go, wow, what the fuck happened in that draft? This is a 10 out of 10. I think... We're going to do the 2000 draft together in a couple drafts, which I think both of us are excited about. That's like a minus 10 out of 10. It's like a, what the fuck happened? And also why <laughs> you're confused the entire time. Uh, do you want the first pick or the second pick? I want the second pick. All right, we'll do that. Let's take a break. Then we're going to redraft the 96 draft. Hey, as the novel coronavirus pandemic escalates in the U.S., public health officials are encouraging those who are experiencing signs or symptoms of COVID-19, such as coughing or fever, to seek medical guidance remotely. If you or a loved one are feeling sick or just feeling worried, there's a way to get help without leaving home. Roe is offering free telehealth services for people seeking guidance and information on COVID-19. The service is available free of charge in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. Roe's free online assessment will help determine if you're at risk and if appropriate, Roe will connect you with a medical provider for a free consultation. The assessment was designed by doctors and infectious disease experts and is based on guidelines from the CDC and WHO. Visit roe.co slash coronavirus on your phone. That's ro.co slash coronavirus on your phone or laptop to complete a free online assessment or just learn more. If you're worried that you might be experiencing symptoms, go to roe.co slash coronavirus to start your free assessment today, ro.co slash coronavirus. Okay. A um, couple other subplots just to put people kind of in the headspace of where some of these teams were in, 90, in 96. So you had Philly, who had just traded Barkley four years before, and the trade's catastrophic. And they bottom out. They have a chance to rally the following year. They take Sean Bradley, the second pick. How did you feel about that in uh, 94? Where, what was your Sean Bradley take? Not strong. <laughs> it just, you know, 
just, it didn't even make sense at the time. Like it was no. one of those, it was a little Olawa candy-ish. You know, it was like, oh, so you guys are going to do that? It reminded me of uh, the Hashim Thabit draft in 2009, where there were all those awesome guys in that draft and Memphis had the second pick. And it was like, they, they, they're serious. They're going to take the beat. And all of us, all of us were like, really? You're not really going to do that, right? That's not really going to be the move, right? And then they actually did it. That was the Sean Bradley thing. Do you remember yeah. who was one and three in that draft? Um, in 92? It was whatever the Sean Bradley year was. What was that, 93? or I thought that was 94. You you probably know it better than I do. Let me uh, go back. I thought it was. I wasn't wasn't doing it, diaries then. I wasn't um, either. Because I remember Glenn Robinson. I remember that contract dispute and how. Yeah, it was Weber and then Penny, and then Mashburn, right. and then Isaiah Ryder, who was one of the greatest interviews ever. Do you remember that NBC NBA on NBC on Sunday? I think it was ninety six ninety seven season, and he sat down and did a one on one with somebody, and he was like, "Yo, I kill," and then fill in the blank. I was like, do you, why do you think you're better than he's like, oh, and I'm just like going to pick a name here and be like, I kill, you know, Glenn Rice. <laughs> and it's not, it wasn't Glenn Rice, but it was like the most vicious I've ever seen a player like in a one-on-one -on -one where it's like normally like, hey, we, you know, today's game, Isaiah Ryder, their wing, the JR Ryder later on. He's like, no. Uh, yeah, Weber won, Bradley too. I think the Hashim to beat things perfect because he's not the number one. And you always, you always can tell, like, I finally figured this out later on. But when you ask a school about their own guy and they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> that's what kind of stuff I was getting from UConn about the beat. I was like, what do you guys think about the beat? They're like, well, you know, if he does this, 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 and then 20 things later, you're like, oh, you guys think he sucks. All right. Got it. That was one of those where you just had to watch him run in person for five seconds. You're like, oh, you're going to run that way? There's no way. It's not happening. You're running yeah. like you're wearing concrete sneakers. This wasn't happening. So Philly, my point, they really needed the Iverson thing because they have the combo of the trading Barkley and then the Sean Bradley thing, and they are just rock bottom. Toronto, new franchise, new blood, just looking for anybody good. Isaiah is still running them at that point. Vancouver expansion team, they're just happy to be there. They'll take anybody good. The Minnesota-Milwaukee thing was interesting. So Milwaukee... Um, gets the better player. My, it, I felt that way at the time. I, I think we no all kidding. thought Ray Allen. Yeah, I just, I just thought Ray Allen was. I just loved him. Uh, I just thought he was a sure thing. I not not at the same level of how I felt about KD or somebody like that. But very rarely in college, where you just see somebody in college, you're like that. I would bet my whole life that that guy's going to be good at professional basketball. Ray Allen was so clearly going to be really good. Uh, the Marbury thing, he had the higher upside. But the the family stuff was even worrisome back then. He he had had a really hard life, and um, I they were I thought there were some subtle red flags with him. Uh, as much fun as he was to watch at Georgia Tech, but they wanted to put him with KG and try to do the whole Stockton Malone thing. Then you have the Celts at six, delighted to get Antoine Walker, and then after that, um, and the Celts are also coming off the. Len Bias, Reggie Lewis combo and just the fall of the Boston Garden. This is the first real sign of hope that they've had in a while. And then you go through the rest of them. The, the Nets one is probably the most interesting one at eight, but we talked about the reasons for that, where they're doing this rebirth thing with Calipari. And, you know, the Nets had, they had lost Drazen Petrovic. 
that had a nice little run there where there was a little something with Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson, and Drazen. And then all those guys are gone in two years. And that's a complete reboot for them too. So there's a, this is a really kind of rough time for the league because you had the 96 Bulls going 72 and 10. Part of the reason they went 72 and 10 was because there's so many bad teams because the league had overexpanded. The quality of play was not that good. They're moving the three-pointer line around. They can't decide where that should be. It's way too physical. Uh, it just, this wasn't like a great time for basketball. They needed this draft is my point. Yeah. And then the rest of the guys, Dampier, as you mentioned, 10 after Smocky Walker, Todd Fuller, Vitali, and then Kobe Peja, and then Nash is, is just outside of it. I even sneaky like Tony Delk a little bit, um, who played I 10 years in the league. So do you want to go first then? Yeah, I'll go first. First pick, um, the way we decided to do this, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a time machine element. Like, do we draft for who we thought the team should have taken at the time, or do we just take the best player and do it in that order? I think we should just go in the order of here's who we think were the best players going down descending order, and then we could kind of talk. It's about a lot like, they- just in as a side, you know. It's a lot like the rewatchables for me where I still don't understand what we're doing, but it's my like third what Apex one. Menace. Yeah, yeah, like third one, third redraft for me. I still don't know really what your rules are for this, even though it's your vision and, and some of these different <laughs> rankings. I look at this as, you know, if you were starting franchises, who would you go with? Not that's how I look hey, at it too. Did they have did they have good guard depth in nineteen ninety six? I agree. A different team. All right. So I'll take Kobe first because he's one of the ten best players of all time. And you know, I, I didn't even really full. There's no way he would have gone first. It would have been absurd, impossible, et cetera. But it is funny that Philly had the first pick in this draft and, and he was playing there and he was in their backyard, but you know, uh, that, I wonder, was, that wasn't going to happen. There's no way no, I know taken it Kobe Bryant, number one over Allen Iverson, forget it. I even, if they had taken him sixth, I think people would have been mad, but it's just kind of funny because once the high schoolers started to have success, there is a world where five years later, no somebody, doubt. Like, somebody like Kobe could yeah. have gone number one in a draft. It was not happening in 1996. So anyway, I, I have Agreed. Kobe Bryant as the first pick. Now you're on the clock at number two for, uh, for the sake of the redraft. Toronto had this pick. Okay, this is, uh, I'm not doing this to get attention. I'm not doing this for any other reason then there's no way I would take Iverson here. And I think 90% of the people listening are like, are you nuts? You have to take Iverson after Kobe. I don't think anybody would take Iverson over Kobe. I don't think it's that ridiculous. But Iverson, and I can go through all this Iverson stuff if you want to, or we can wait until we pick him, but I would take Nash. I think Nash, plugging him in to any scenario, he makes everybody better. He should have shot more. Um, honestly, I always thought if he was healthier later on, and this isn't me pretending he's all of a sudden healthy, but he would have been an awesome two guard at like 20 minutes a game, just hitting threes. Uh, but he just, you know, he, the back couldn't stay healthy, but his impact on a team was far more positive than Iverson's. And I would take Nash on our redraft. So I have Nash ranked higher on my hall of fame pyramid and I'm with you. I would take him higher as well. I loved Iverson. I'm actually in the super defensive about Iverson camp because I knew what's happened over the last 10 years. You could feel the seeds of it being planted last, uh, in the two thousands, where as the future generations came and they had no idea what it was like to watch him play and see him 
all the stuff that he brought to the table, it was never going to translate to 50 years later. Oh, what is, what was this guy? What's going on here? This, the advanced metrics were never going to be his friend. With all that said, I just would rather have Nash. And, you know, I think his teams were consistently more successful. He made other guys better. He could play with just about anybody. And, you know, he, his peak basically goes from 98 through 2011. Iverson's peak, he, it really kicks in in 98 and he has, you know, he averages 29 a game from 1999 through 2008, 10 straight years, 29 a game. It's weird. He never had that second, you know, really qualified all-star other than Carmelo when he got to Denver. On the other hand, he played with a lot of good players who were kind of qualified to be second second guys on a really good team. Like when they got to Kembe, he was the defensive player of the year. He was still a top four center. He had Jerry Stackhouse, who eventually became a 30-point scorer. You know, I it, it's not like he never played with anybody. I don't think it's like a T-Max situation. Right, but the difference is, is like T-Max style didn't make the rest of the roster think like, what am I doing here? Iverson style, like he, they didn't get rid of Stackhouse because they didn't like Stackhouse. It's like, let's try something different. And yes, they tried the Larry Hughes thing, which we went over in one of the other drafts. Uh, they had Andre Iguodala there. I even really liked that Theo Ratliff group, but then Larry Brown's like, look, I can bring in Dikembe, so I'm going to go ahead and do that kind of stuff. But Van, Horn, year, Van Horn was the other one they had. And Van Horn right. was the second pick in the draft. He brought in these guys. So that first year Iverson comes in, and this is the difference. And look, no one's trying to tell you that Iverson's LeBron, but I think that there's a lot of shortcomings here when you look at the overall career arc here. And I'm not trying to do the analytics, let's trash him, you know, the shooting efficiency and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the guy was that small playing like 41, 42 minutes a game. I think he played like 41 minutes a game for his career, and he was yep. still doing it at the very end. Um, but when he go, it comes into the league, a bad team goes 22 and 60. You know what else is kind of weird? I was looking at the Sixers' attendance numbers during all this. They weren't as good as you would think they would have been. It, like the, the Philly fans like, turned on that team pretty quickly after the 01 thing. Um, the I, think that year, was, I think that was uh, going on across the board with the NBA, though. The late 90s were rough because that was when the salaries went way up. The, the fans had a lot of trouble identifying with the players. The hip-hop influence was so strong at that point. And there definitely was a little bit of a disconnect. That's when Stern started to put it in the dress code, the rookie stale. That was years so, later, though, after the Detroit and Pacers thing. No, I'm saying like the 98 through 02, there's a lot of a, a lot of tug of war between Stern and the players and just trying to get them to be more personable to the fans and to think a lot about you know, how they presented themselves. And I don't, it was a very strange era. It was weird to go to the games back then. Like the Celtic fans didn't like Antoine Walker for two years. They did not like the Antoine shimmy. They do you blame Ja Rule? <laughs> Maybe it, there was some weird societal stuff going on back then though. Like you could definitely but, feel it. Okay. But I'm, I can only compare Philly to the other attendance numbers to the other 30 teams and they are lower True. For in total attendance than you would think. Like, it was kind of weird. So, look, bad records those first two years. He gets to the second round of his third year, second round of his fourth year. Then they make the NBA Finals, and that's pretty much it, man. From 2002-2003 season, it's a six-game loss in the second round of the Pistons. He never got to the second round again. He right. never got to the second round again. So I understand when you get Iverson, you get somebody that, you know, we applaud him for keeping it real. And... 
That's awesome. We applaud we we applaud him for kind of being anti corporate, even though he was that. He did transcend. He was a smaller guy dunking on people. He was, you know, Newport News, the whole deal. Like we get it. But if you really break down, and I'm not even trying to do the analytic things here, you just had to play a certain style that was only his style, and it was far less successful than I think people ever want to remember historically. So I would actually take Ray Allen ahead of him in my draft if you're not taking Iverson third. So it's funny. I had Allen ahead of uh, Iverson in the Hall of Fame pyramid. I mean, I'm sorry. I had uh, Iverson ahead of Ray Allen in the Hall of Fame pyramid. I th- I yeah. just think he had a more meaningful career. The two things I, I agree with 90% of what you just said. Two things Iverson brought to the table that can't be taken for granted. And I wrote about this in my book when my thing about him was about when you get season tickets in the mail and you're just looking at the schedule and you're like, who are my, who are the eight guys I have to see this year? And it might be five guys. It might be seven. It might be nine. Like if, if you're doing it this year, you know, if we had the NBA right now, you'd be like, you'd, you'd take the Laker game. You'd put a check mark next to that. You'd, you'd do Giannis. You do the Celtics, but if you're just talking about individual players, there's not many. Like I, I really like seeing Dame Lillard in person. Like you go on down the line, and there's maybe eight to twelve guys. Iverson was always on that list for me, no matter how his team was doing. I thought he was an incredible guy to see in person because he was really like probably five nine and a half, five ten. The the way he carried himself, how much he played, he never came out. He carried himself like he was like a seven foot, 300 pound guy and he wasn't. So I would say that for that. And then the other thing is the respect the other guys had for him, which I think matters. I think when you talk to some of these guys, which both of us have had the privilege of doing, and sometimes it's eye opening who they, who they go out of their way to gush about. I think Kyrie was like that in, in, you know, the 2016, 17 range where the other players were almost like his biggest advocates. And I think with Iverson, the other players, regardless of whether the win totals and the other stuff backed it up, they really respected him. And he, even in the all-star game, like he was always in crunch time. He was always, you know, it always made sense that he had the ball at the end of the game, no matter how many good players were on the floor. So it, it's a really weird career that I can't, almost can't compare it to. Nobody like him now you could even say it would be like if Damian Lillard was the toughest guy in the league and, but his team wasn't even as successful as it is now, but it felt like they were more successful. That was Iverson. I have no counter to that. I think the best thing you could do would be Jordan without rings. (laughs) Like if Jordan just, you know, if Jordan couldn't get past the Pacers in the second round for whatever reason, uh, but that it's just impossible. It's, It's impossible to even try to do that. Like, Hey, imagine a, a 20-year arc of Jordan without success. I mean, as I say it out loud, it's just it's impossible to ever vision, envision that. But I think all the pro-Iverson arguments become about a lot of the stuff that doesn't equate to winning. But I have no counter. Like, I made sure I got a chance to go see him because I wanted to see him. That Iverson-Ray Allen showdown is one of my favorite basketball. It's probably one of my favorite sporting events ever. Just being in the moment with my buddies in college and watching those two go at it in the biggest tournament. I absolutely love it. So this is not an anti-Iverson thing. This is strictly a, he did not care about winning. He did not approach the game in a winning way for me to pass on somebody like Steve Nash. And I think Nash was definitely the right pick. I 
cannot figure out what the ceiling was on an Iverson team. We saw it in 2001. They made the, the East finals. Wasn't that good? I East went wasn't that good. Team. And I got to be honest, I don't think the right team made the finals that year for the East. I thought the Bucks were better. Milwaukee, I did too. Yeah, and you watch those games, and it's kind of hard to believe the Bucks didn't beat them. The Bucks just seem like more of a finals team. Um, I Iverson had a better career. He was a more memorable player. If I'm drafting this, if I'm a GM and I have time machine access in 1996, I would take Ray Allen with the third pick because I'm getting, I'm getting him for 18 years. I'm getting this guy who at his peak, which he had a couple really nice ones on Milwaukee, um, you know, was the alpha dog on a Bucks team that almost made the finals, but just in general was one of the most efficient guys we've had in the last 25 years. I can put him with anybody. He goes and has a second life with the Celtics. And then this third life with Miami. And I was just watching uh game six, 2013. I just think he's a safer bet. If I'm trying to win a title than Allen Iverson was now, I didn't realize that at any point during Iverson's career. But now if I'm looking back, if my goal is to win the title, Ray Allen is a better pick. He just is. So I would take Ray Allen third. Ray's interesting in that you said it. He'd had like these two versions. I, I think it's three versions because. No, there I'm, is three. The Milwaukee oh, version. Maybe it's four. Maybe it's yeah. four though because, I mean, what he started doing, you know, in Milwaukee, he's, he's 20 a game. The three-point numbers are just crazy. Uh, I remember when I was doing that Celtics TV stuff for years and, you know, he first got there in 07, 08 and I was working with Donnie Marshall who knew Ray from the UConn years and and Donnie was a little bit older than him and Donnie was, was just a great guy to talk hoops with and he comes back, he goes, man, he goes, Ray like changed his shot. I'm like, Ray Allen changed his jump shot? I'm like, why would, like, why would anyone do that? That's like DiCaprio deciding, you know, I want to I do spoken word. And you're like, what? Right. So, Ray did this little thing with like his hands at the end of it. And, and Ray was right. Like Ray made this tweak to what already looked like the wettest jumper going. And he had this awesome Seattle stretch where he put up huge, he's 25, 26 a game. So when he came to Boston, 07, 08, and that was kind of the first piece when it looked like they were going to trade Paul, but Ainge was always great and not trading Pierce just because he felt like, oh, the rest of the team isn't good. But Ainge was brilliant with that. And I know it sounds stupid to say brilliant, but so many other people wouldn't do it. Be like, hey, we're not any good. All right, well, this guy that isn't 30, that's really good. Let's get rid of him. <laughs> you know, like other teams did that. And they add Ray to that for Jeff Green, which seems criminal yeah. because Ray still at that point, you know, he'd had the ankles things. He comes in 32, but that led to KG and all that stuff. Ray sacrificed more with his approach to the game than the other two guys did. Now, I still think KG and Paul were better than Ray. And Ray then becomes this guy who's trying to figure out around him because he was a better shooter with the ball and then found a way. I, I really think it took him a while to kind of get comfortable in that you're just not going to have the ball in his hands that much. And he found that with Miami because it was weird, too. Remember in Boston when he started to kind of lose his handle? Because he wasn't... Yeah. He wasn't dribbling as much in Boston's offense, and then he just kind of lost his hand a little bit there. So, I, uh, I man, I wonder how bad people are going to get about this. So, you passed on Iverson for Ray, but the analytics will tell you that Ray's behind only Kobe in like two or three of the categories. Well, so I'm looking at this like not who is going to who's going to sell more jerseys and who's going to be more fun to have on my team. If I'm just trying to win a title, Ray Allen has to be the pick. You look at. 
his numbers from 2000 to 2007, he is the most ahead of his time guy we've had in the last 30 years. He's averaging 23, five and four. His 45, 40, 89 percentages. He's shooting 40, 40 from three, but he's taking seven threes. And this is at a time nobody was taking, you know, if you took four threes a game, that was a lot. I think if you put him in the era that we're in now, he's one of the 10 best guys in the league every year. That version of Ray Allen year after year is somebody you could build a franchise around. And I don't know. I, the longevity, I think, pushes it over the top to me. This guy was good in 1997. In, 1994, in 2014, he's still in the finals playing crunch time for that Miami team. We're talking, you know, uh, 18 years. Iverson just flamed out a little too fast for me. Iverson's career was basically over by 2009. Yeah, he hasn't played in a decade. Yeah. You know, he had so, that weird Memphis thing, and then he closed it out in Philly, just as kind of like a novelty deal. And remember, he still wanted to play. But at that point, too, like if you really want to dig into all this stuff, and I don't know how far, I don't really want to get sidetracked in here, but Iverson, if he played today with the off-the-court stuff, he'd be getting suspended from the league. So his career is effectively, his last good year as a legitimately effective player is 2009. And I remember, and I have this, it's in my archives, you can look it up. Um, not you, but anybody out there. When Denver trades uh, Iverson to Detroit for Billups and people are on TV going, great trade for the Pistons. You know, you get Allen Iverson. And I'm like, you. I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to basketball games and watching League Pass. Like Iverson shot as a, as a perennial all-star franchise guy. It's just gone. He doesn't have it anymore. So I think the fact that his kind of stretch was just shorter than... Uh, than raise. I think that has to matter. And the other thing I would ask, so if Iverson, if Milwaukee beats them that, that, that round, which is really conceivable. And I think they should have, I really think the wrong team won. And I think that was one of the most poorly officiated series ever. How do we remember Iverson? If we don't even know, like no finals trips, I think he's thought about completely differently. We're you know, you're almost thinking, I'm trying to think who the football quarterback is that we would compare him to. Uh, Flacco? No, <laughs> Flacco. <laughs> no, that one is nice. Uh, I, I really think that 2001, like I used to always think LeBron deserves like a half a ring for that 2007 NBA Finals appearance because of yeah. what they did to Detroit. Like he'd only been in the league, you know, not even five years. Detroit still, you know, they look at themselves as the bully Rashid's guaranteeing wins after every single playoff loss. They kept losing. And LeBron takes him out with that epic game in 2007 where it was the, kind of the first, like, whoa, what is this guy? And then they get smoked by the Spurs. Not a big deal. Same thing as kind of like a, a Shaq Penny deal with Orlando going up against Akeem. But that 2001 finals, they get the first game against LA and they get mopped. I, it, he's gotten a lot of run out. Like, I feel like I'm not saying people like, look, the Lakers are supposed to beat them. We've just gone through how bad we didn't think the East was that year. But it's it's salvaged Iverson in a way where, you know, I, I got to read about Chris Paul sucking all the time because he can't get out of the second round. But Iverson, as the lead guy, the undisputed lead guy for every team he was on until, you know, look, the Denver thing was kind of heeing back and forth. And you're right. By the time he got to Detroit, it was over. Uh, he gets Did you. I'm not saying like I, you know, I don't want to turn this in. I'm, I'm sounding very anti-Iverson, but I'm I'm just saying like no, we're, 2000, we're both pro-Iverson. 2001 is so positive for him 
And I think that's the love that people have for him. You know, like it's never, ever held against him. That that's kind of the only real playoff run that you had. Like the only one. Right. Well, the other thing, and again, I, I didn't want to rely on the stats too much because I really think it's important to mention how, how larger than life he was at the time and what it was like to watch him in person. I just loved Iverson. But, you know, his stats, part of the reason his stats were so impressive was he just played an incredible amount of minutes. If you go to his per 36 numbers, his per 36 scoring average is 23.3. His per, his actual scoring average in real life is 26.7. He played, so he, he was, as you said earlier, he's playing for his career. He played 41.1 <laughs> minutes a game. It's, not, it's, like, I'm, it's like he's Will Chamberlain. And, and it I wasn't think, like he was getting any sleep. You know? I do, right. It's true. He's up 24 hours a day. So I, if you look at his per 36, <laughs> he's he's 23, 5, and 3. He's 42.5% uh, from the field and 31% from three. And his stats really aren't different than all of Ray Allen's prime because Ray Allen's playing 35, 36 minutes a game, not 40. It's honestly not crazy to think Ray Allen is a better pick than Allen Iverson because if you're trying to win a title, he's just a safer bet. You can put... Iverson, you have to move your whole team around what he does. With Ray Allen, you didn't have to do that. So I'm taking Ray Allen third. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned Ray Allen being ahead of the time. Uh, I was looking up, I looked at one of the years where he had like 7.78 attempts there, a game from three, which is just, you, it can't express how monumental that is in like 0102. Eight players took 400 or more threes. Of course, like number one and number three were, were Tuan and Pierce. Which right. didn't even count because the beginning of of the Patino Tuan Pierce thing was just gross with the amount of threes that those guys took. Like you think guys take bad shots now? You think D'Angelo Russell or Zach Levine get a little aggressive every now with a three point attempt? You got you got nothing on early Tuan. Um, yeah. So eight players, four hundred or more attempts. The past full season, eighteen nineteen, forty three players took four hundred or more threes. No one more than James Harden who took one thousand twenty eight threes. And also 858 free throws. So Harden took almost 1,900 threes and free throws for a full season. Enjoy that. That's pretty gross, but nothing was grosser than watching a Kyle Lowry offensive foul mixtape that came out from so far this season. I think he has 47 charges taken. I counted 46 flops. I would rather watch a Joe Exotic sex tape than Kyle Lowry <laughs> taking charges. You know, I saw that tape floating around and I was like, I hope Priscilla doesn't Which, see that. Which, the Joe He's Exotic one? No, either. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the Lowry one, I didn't even make it through it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch this and then I'm going to count how many flops there are and then I'm going to tweet something really shitty. And I I had a, I actually closed out of the video. I couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. So you you have Iverson fourth, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's he not can't get drop ridiculous the, here. Yeah. Right. So Vancouver with Ray Allen and then Iverson with uh, going to Milwaukee at four. And, I, you know, I know people are going to get pissed about the Iverson thing. I remember um, remember TNT did that redraft of the all-timers and Barkley took Allen Iverson first and it almost cost like a riot. It almost caused a riot on the internet. People are like, what are you doing? How? You, remember they were all drafted and they were all-time teams and it was a snake draft. And Barkley had like the third pick. He took Iverson. And people were like, you've just ruined this whole exercise. And he's like, I don't care. Alan Iverson was great. And every television producer everywhere was like, how do we find the next Barkley? 
So with the fifth pick, which in the uh, in the actual draft was Minnesota, there's two. Well, there's three guys on the board. Just so for the people listening at home, we got Jermaine O'Neal, Ben Ben Wallace, Paige Stakovic, Marcus Camby, Stephon Marbury, even Anton Walker. All those guys are on the board. I am taking because this will be a recurring theme with these redrafts that we do. I watched Jermaine O'Neal be the best guy on teams that could have won the title. And that matters to me more than anybody else on that list. I thought long and hard about Ben Wallace, but his prime just wasn't good enough. The Jermaine O'Neal thing, really in the running for strangest uh, basketball reference page, He's on Portland for four years, not playing. Yeah, not playing, right? Remember, Patino was always trying to trade for him. Yeah, oh, every year. And he's just buried on these Portland teams behind Rasheed Wallace, Sabonis, Dale Davis is on there, and they're not giving him any run. And people like us are like, he's being thrown, he was kind of like a Roddy Boubois type situation where the trade asset of him was so much more valuable than if you actually watched (laughs) him in a game. You're like... Uh, but then he, then Indiana trades for him. Oh, I guess they traded Dale Davis for him or as, as part of it. But then, then he became a really, really, really good player in Indiana there for a couple of years in that Oh four series against Detroit. He's great. I thought the Oh five year, the melee, he misses half the season. He's really good that year. He averaged 24 a game that year. I thought he was awesome in the, uh, Celtics playoff series that year. And I really liked that post melee. Pacers team just in general. Um, but I, for the amount of years he played and all that, I think he's the pick. So I'm taking him fifth. What do you think of that? I love it because I had him, I think higher than, than I thought I would when I went into it, but I'm with you. If you go peak Jermaine O'Neal, he's a really good player. I mean, he put up some massive numbers there with the Pacers, but you're right. Like he started, he started 18 games those first four years. He played 10 minutes a game, 13 minutes a game, 9 minutes a game, 12 minutes a game when he was in Portland. And that was, you know, he was still kind of part of this fallout of the high school thing. And you'd just be like, oh, you know, look at this guy. And honestly, too, even though he was kind of this weird hybrid center power forward, that's what was so appealing about him, too, is that he could face up a little bit, but he could still do some of that traditional stuff. And he would have been in his prime younger, a really nice player today because he was a really, I thought, a pretty good athlete. Then he slowed down a little bit. But after that Pacers thing, I mean, it was over. Like his career was kind of like over by the time he was 29 and he still played a, another six or so years. So I, I don't mean to be harsh about it. Like he had a good year in 9-10 in Miami at, at 31, but he's playing 28 minutes. He's scoring 13 and seven. And he's he's just kind of a rotation guy at that point, even though he was somebody I still really liked. I I liked it. I didn't I didn't have him that high, but I'm I'm not anti-Jermaine O'Neal at all. Uh so, so one, I, one I, thing with him that I didn't realize, he made third-team All-NBA in 02 and 03, and then he made second-team All-NBA in 04. So for three straight years, he was a top-15 guy and a top-10 guy in 04, and I think he would have been a top-10 guy in 05, too, if the melee hadn't happened. I also think this point can't be hit strongly enough. I really do think the 05 Pacers were the best NBA team that year. And now you could say, well, the reason they didn't win is because Ron Artest was a lunatic and got into a huge melee and and the seeds of it were planted during that fight that that precipitated the melee and that team was going to blow up anyway. That team was, there was just too much 
craziness on that team. It never, they never could have made it eight months. You can make that case, but that 05 finals was one of the more unsatisfying finals. It never felt like those were the two best teams. The series itself wasn't that good. That Spurs team that won Duncan, it just was not like a peak Duncan performance. I think he was pretty banged up. I really think Indiana was the best team that year and he was the best guy in that team. So that's got to matter too. Yeah. But that was also that, that finals where we had some, you know, 84 to 69 in game one. Yeah. Spurs. Indiana, Indiana liked that stuff though. They, they remember the year before the Detroit, they had like a 66 to 60 game or something. Yeah. There's, there's worse ones to point out, which I yeah. do think we should do as a rewatchable. We should watch the worst playoff game in modern history. Like one of those, one of those games are at 70 to 60 or something with the Pistons. No, I know the game. It was Celtics Pistons. Cause I went to a 66, 64 final. I think there's another one. Stanford Steve hit me up with this. He said, I think there's some Knicks game where I forget who the famous guy was. He'd bet on the game, but he also done lightning on it. So you pay a penalty on how many points under or you win over. Oh. And he had the over and it went like 30 points under. So I'll have to double check because Stanford mm. Steve checked in to be like, hey, you guys should do this. All right. So you got Jermaine O'Neal. I'm, gonna I'm go going to hit five. So you're, you're now on the clock at number six, which would have been the Celtics pick. I'm going to just tell Camby to take the mass pike in and be a Celtic. Uh, Camby played 17 years. Yes, I thought he was going to be better. His lead, you know who the most points per game he ever scored was his rookie year with Toronto? 15 a game. That's the most he ever scored for a season. And he was double figures, 12, 10, 12, 11. And he basically wasn't again until he got to Denver a little bit. He's defensive player of the year. I just felt like he did more at UMass offensively and that when he got to the NBA, I don't know if it's because he was skinny. I don't know if it was strictly because of the roster development. And the NBA has a way of kind of eating itself in that, oh yeah, right? Like as good as you were in college, like you have to adjust to us. I didn't think Camby was going to have to make that adjustment that he was going to be a good player a role player. So I guess I ended up being wrong, but I was watching him. He had 32 in that first game against Kentucky when Kentucky was number one. It was at uh, with the Palace of Auburn Hills. UMass was fifth. That UMass thing was weird for all of us that were from Eastern Mass because we're like, are we really rooting for Western Mass? But it was so much fun with Cal, Lou Rowe the year before, and all those UMass guys. So I, I really thought that Camby was going to be able to do a little bit more offensively and because he showed it at UMass and then he just kind of became a very specific, uh, not a role player. That's that's not saying enough about him. He's a starter. He played for a long time, but I still thought there was a version of him that would had a higher ceiling. After the break, I'm going to read you all the trades Marcus Camby was ever involved in. Let's take a break to talk about one of my favorite companies, Roots of Fight. We have never talked about them on this podcast, except for when they made a bunch of ringer sweatshirts for us that were absolutely ridiculously great. Go to their website. You can find awesome t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. Um, they did a black history tribute thing for, with Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson, and Jackie Robinson. You can pick by the sport, boxing, martial arts, wrestling, baseball, basketball, football. They have an incredible Julius Irving collection. I was on there this week. And ended up buying a bunch of stuff. I love their uh, 
I love their XXL t-shirts be to sleep in, like giant night shirts too. So anyway, I was getting a bunch of stuff and then they were nice enough. They noticed my name and added a few things in there. And I was just like, you know what? Even though they keep it low key, they love word of mouth stuff. I got to shout these guys out. Right now you can go to the store. It's 20% off with portions of all sales going to WHO for the uh, COVID-19 response fund. But if you've never checked out this website, Go check out the stuff that they have. And I got to say, the the t-shirts that they make and the hoodies they make are probably my favorite t-shirts and hoodies right now. Now, granted, you're taking the advice of a 50-year-old guy, but I'm telling you, my son, who's 12 years old, who's actually cool, he loves this stuff more than anybody. And they made the Ringer sweatshirts, which were, we, we had, they made the Ringer sweatshirts and the hoodies, the zip hoodies, and at Grantland, we had a friend of mine at Nike, John Nagel. What's up, John? He made uh, he made us these awesome Grantland hoodies that uh, are, those are two of the coolest things I own. So anyway, rootsoffight.com. If you're just online, you need to want to check out t-shirts, even just to check out the site and have, have fun just zooming through all the different things they make, go check them out, rootsoffight.com. Back to the pod. Okay, without further ado, every trade that Marcus Camby was in, June 98, traded to the Knicks for Sean Marks, Charles Oakley, and Cash. That was a great trade for the Knicks. June 2002, traded by the Knicks with Nene and Mark Jackson for Antonio McDice, Frank Williams, and a second-round pick. 2008, traded by Denver with a 2010 second to the Clippers for a second round draft pick. That was like the rare good Clippers trade. Cause I, he was actually half decent that year and, and had some trade value, uh, traded in 2010, February to the Blazers for Steve. That was Lake Willie Warren. Willie Warren. There you go. Uh, February, 2010 traded the trailblazers for Steve Blake and Travis outlaw had a nice little, uh, Blazers resurgence, then traded to Houston for Johnny Flynn, Hashim to beat in a second. Oh, we're not done. Traded to the Knicks for Tony Douglas, Josh Harrelson, Jerome Jordan, and a second. Then Jorts. Traded to the Knicks with Novak, Quentin Richardson, and a second for Andrea Bargnani. Side note, Steve Novak would be a max player in today's game. No question. So he was he he was involved in a lot of stuff. I have a great Marcus Camby fact for you. He makes, he has the iconic lockout 99 playoffs run where Ewing gets hurt and they're actually better off with Canby. They come back the next year. They almost make the finals again in 2000. Indiana beats them. He then makes the playoffs. One, two, three, four, 10 more times. First round and out every time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the difference is between like I hold the playoff stuff against you Unless I really like you, then I'll find a way to spin it in my favor. But if you're the lead guy, it's kind of on you where it can be. I don't blame him for yeah. that. I'm just yeah. 10 straight first round That's exits. That's really, really, that might have to be near a record, right? 10 straight. If people say shit to Mello, Mello be like, hey, you ever heard of Marcus Camby? Like, get off of my back. Because I always felt like I, the Mello knocks were like Mello. Every time you look at Mello's playoff losses when they're all the first round exits, they almost always lost the team that was better than them anyway. Um, true. So that's, that's kind of a pro mellow thing, but it's, it just sounds better to be like, oh, he sucks in the playoffs. So do you have have any problem with the Camby? Do do you, did I make a mistake? How do you look at the board right now? I, uh, 
I have a Marcus Camby point that's just for you. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna lightly fry it in some sesame oil and give you some dipping sauce with it, and you can just eat it because you're gonna enjoy it so much. Hold on, hold on. Mar- Should I put on his jersey for this? <laughs> you don't have to. It'll take two seconds. Marcus Camby ahead of his time. Yeah. If if you take 1999 Marcus Camby and you move him forward 20 years, he's like the perfect five. Yeah, right? I mean, Tyson Chandler's still making money. I think Marcus Camby would have been like potentially like really in demand. Like if, if Capella ends up getting 14 million a year in a first round pick, I feel like Camby was better than Clint Capella, right? I don't know. I think Capella was a product of, uh, Capella ended up being better than I thought he would be, but Capella also was a massive beneficiary of Harden, you know, because everybody's freaked out the whole time. Seventh pick. Um, this is tough. I had these guys, I had, I had Canby, Wallace and Stereakovic all, all huddled together. I guess I'm taking Ben Wallace at seven undrafted, which remains incredible. Um, yeah, because he was like six, six school, Virginia, a way shorter kind of prime than I would have wanted. Chicago signs him away from Detroit. It's a big deal. And within a year, he's kind of like, it's kind of like semi luggage. They wouldn't let him wear a headband. Remember, it's weird. But, um, they, you could argue he was the best player in the 2004 Pistons in that playoff run. He was. He might have been the most valuable. I know Chauncey won the uh, Finals MVP, uh, and I I think it's hard to say who was the most important player on that Pistons team because one of the things that made them special was those five guys together and the way they complement each other and how good defensively they were. But Ben Wallace was an absolutely destructive uh, player there for, you look at four straight, uh, five straight years. Jesus. Um, Dating back to Orlando, just completely blowing it and getting rid of him in the, uh, in the Grand Hill trade, just having no idea what they have or, or what they had. You go after that. He shows up in Detroit in 2001 and from 2001 to 2005 he's 13 rebounds a game three blocks a game and one and a half steals a game like he he's his block steals there for half a decade are Hakeem David Robinson-y you know and in in person it was the same thing like it really did feel like he was the best defensive player in the league uh the biggest defensive asset anybody had there for a while he he held his own against Shaq in in 04 when Shaq was really trying to go back into the wayback machine and really only had one great game against him. And uh, I don't know. I mean, he brought so many bad things to the table. The free throw shooting was abominable. He was an offensive liability, but just figured out how to do so many different things. I would just rather have him than anybody else on this list. So there you go. I loved him. Uh, Yeah, the best version of him was unbelievable. The way he could switch. He's listed at 6'9". I don't know. I don't even know, but it didn't matter. It was unbelievable watching what he could do as a defensive player. And that's what I really loved about that Pistons team is that you had Wallace who could switch out to anyone on the perimeter. 
Like he just could, but then you had Chauncey who could switch and defend some power forward in the post. He wasn't going to give up because Chauncey was so damn strong and smart. And Tayshawn had length to at least challenge a little bit. And then Rashid's there who could kind of be all over the place. I mean, it was really an incredible roster one through five of guys that you know just found a way to complement each other. I remember, look, I, I thought when we were making fun of the idea that, you know, we liked um, I, some of my misses, Marcus Pfizer being one of them. When I watched <laughs> Wallace in his fourth year at Orlando, yeah. I liked I liked him. I mean, he played 81 games that year. I go, you know who I always kind of like a little bit? But you're right. I mean, he never cracked double figures. He ended up in the 30% of the free throw line. It was getting awful. I mean, it was like he was flirting with 50, and then it got worse. And I remember Larry Brown. There's always a very good lesson, too, for younger who people down there. Like, they were giving Ben Wallace some touches. Remember how weird that was when they Oklahoma City would let Perk get the first offensive touch of every game, and he would, like, get a play in the post, and you just be right. like, Why, what are you doing? Right. Um, I, that was sort of just this thing that the Thunder always seemed to want to do. Probably Westbrook wanted to do it, and everybody just else had to listen. Uh, but Larry Brown, I'm serious. Larry Brown would talk about wanting Ben Wallace to get more touches, and I'd go, why would you ever do that with this guy? He's a zero on offense. But it was a really good point, is that it sucks to just rebound and defend all game. So the more we can get him a touch every now and then, the more engaged he's going to be. So when there are plays that run that aren't the best offensive option, understand that there's there's a payoff to it if you have the right guy. And Wallace was that guy. So I peak Wallace, I I just loved. His first 75 playoff games for the Pistons from 02 to 05, he's 14 rebounds a game, 2.6 blocks, 2.0 steals. And he's just a menace. And he he barely, he didn't even crack 10 points a game during that stretch, but I, he I never just, did. He's one of those guys that if you bet against them, you know, if you're actually like literally gambled against the Pistons in a playoff game, I it, I just hated going against him. I always felt like he was going to do the right thing at the right time. And you got I got to say the 05 finals, him and Rashid together, the job they did on Duncan. Duncan's never been treated like that defensively over the course of 2 weeks in his peak like he was in that. Like they really they really throttled him. So I'm going seven. He goes to the Clippers. The number eight pick, this would have been the Nets. Who do you have? I also didn't, I should have mentioned Rip Hamilton in that group. Uh, real quick on Wallace follow-up. Would he thrive today or a liability? Because it's a tough answer. I'm not sure I have the answer. I think he's worse off now because you can't play four on five offensively now with the spacing. I don't, I don't know where he would stand on the court. I mean, you'd almost have to use him like Philly was using Ben Simmons during those playoff games when they didn't know where to put him and he was just kind of circling around on the baseline. That's really the only thing you could do with him. Otherwise, he would screw up. You know, he would either clog the middle or he would screw You could set picks with him, but nobody's going to guard him stepping off for a three or anything. I don't, I'm not really sure what you would do. I think he was in the right era. Okay, but that's the argument against. But think about the big guys that he had to defend at his size that he was giving up all the time. And now if you look at how small the front lines are, I still think if you're good enough, you can get away with one guy that's not an offensive threat. I mean, the goal now is to put five guys out there to get you a bucket. But I think Wallace would beat... I, I'm betting on prime Wallace to find a way to abuse the other five in a size-down league to maybe even get you a few more points just because he's dominating the board so much. Um, so I'm not going to completely write him off because of spacing. No, I don't, I'm not writing him off either. I just think he was in the right era. 
I think the thing that would have really helped him was how many more possessions and the pace of how people play now. I think, you know, he was so athletic that he would have loved that, right? Versus yeah, just getting up and running around thing. With, yeah, like Draymond. So maybe, now, now you talk me into it. Maybe yeah. he would have been better now. Let's bring him in. Ben Wallace, come on in. Uh, all right, you're the eighth pick. Who do you have? Peja. Yep. You know, yeah. there's an argument for Peja ahead of Camby, ahead of Wallace. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Peja flirting. You would know this probably better off the top of your head, but what did he come in second in the MVP one year? Was it third? No, but but he was. Or was he just no. in the conversation and I'm I'm not remembering the voting? No, he had a he had a year. Was he first team All NBA? He only made three All Star teams. Oh yeah, oh four. He was second team All NBA, and yeah, he, was he fourth in the two thousand four MVP? Is that possible? I thought there was yeah. a year he was way he was, up there. Yeah, our two thousand four MVP ballot: Kevin Garnett first, Duncan second, Jermaine O'Neal third, Peja four, Kobe Bryant five, Shaq six, Ben Wallace seven. Saying Shaq out loud sixth just sounds fucking stupid. Well, that was the year when he... I know, but it was that was right. It was after everything had kind of calmed down, but I, I don't know. Just, it's one of those Shaq MVP things. So it's funny. Peja was another little ahead of his time guy. Never took, never took seven threes in a season. Year after year, starting in 01, he's shooting 40% from three. He has basically an entire decade until 2009 of shooting 40% from three from 01 to 08, 41% from three taking almost six a game, 20 a game, a guy who I think if he's playing now would have been so much more dangerous and so much more fun to watch. It's hard to think of him without thinking of him bricking that shot against in game seven against the Lakers when he just had both hands around his neck, but he rebounded at least a little bit from it. Yeah, big time numbers. And he was huge. Like this guy was a guy that could handle. I mean, he's listed at 6'10. I, you know, I don't know. I'm mean, shaving an inch here, but he never felt like the one. You know, you never felt like, okay, they're that's who their best player is. And, you know, we go back to the beginning of the Weber stuff and how good that Sacramento team was from a talent standpoint. But he put up some massive numbers, man. <laughs> Like for, for, for somebody we never think of as like the key franchise guy, just you're right. Like those those middle years there, there's just this is unbelievable. This is the eighth pick of this draft, and this is a guy that's still available. I'm gonna lightly fry another great point and give you a little more dipping sauce with this one. It, is he clay with no PR? <laughs> Whoa. I don't think I responded well enough to your fried appetizer thing on the Camby thing. I just was sort of blown away by the whole deal. And I was kind of maybe just saying I want to change into that jersey because I was debating a tank top for the Zoom anyway. But yeah, what's he probably handled that ball a hell of a lot more than Clay did. It has to be because Clay, that's the beauty of Clay, he doesn't dribble. He was just as good of a three point shooter as Clay was. He was actually, you could run entire offenses around him. I don't. I actually think if Clay was on a bad team, you could have run offenses around him, but they were weirdly similar, like what their skill sets were. And Clay, I think, um, you know, hits the lottery and ends up with Steph. I think if Peja had been on a team like that, we would have had one conversation about him over the last 10 years. When was the last Peja Stojakovic conversation anyone's had? It's never happened. Yeah, right. Like, I forgot he was in New Orleans for four years. He also had a very, very sneaky 
Nobody remembers this. 2011 Mavs. <laughs> big, br- big brother to Dirk kind of thing. Did he play in the playoffs for them? I'm going to look. Th- oh, yeah. Look at that. He's playing seven, he's playing 18 minutes a game for the 11 Mavs in the playoffs. Oh, Made wait, that's right. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody remembers that, though. He's never mentioned as like, oh, remember when Peja got his ring? No, because the whole collection of those guys was that whole 11 Mavs team is just so weird because of you're like, wait a minute, who's because it was you probably argue the least talented team. I don't know, at least, yeah, uh, of the last 20 years, least talented team to win a title. It was certainly the uh, the only team that only had one great guy to win a title. Yeah, I mean, it's kid Jason Terry, Terry, Marion, Chandler. Chandler, Marion, but they great role players. Yeah, Peja. Yeah, how about that? And Roddy Boubois, the untouchable Roddy Boubois, the asset. All right, ninth pick. This normally we're we're only going to fourteen. Ninth pick was Dallas. Uh, Marbury has officially fallen far enough. That guy was a huge asset. He, <laughs> I, I remember when he ended up on Phoenix finally after the kid trade. Really, really enjoying him and Amari together. That one playoff series against the Suns. I, you know, he put up a, huge numbers. Like every he, night, you'd be like thirty and ten again from this guy. And he's somebody that if you put him now and you spread the floor for him, he was one of those guys. Like Kevin Johnson's like this uh, from from way back. There's guys now like this. Like Westbrook's definitely like this. Spread the floor. He's going by people and getting the rim. Marbury could get by whoever he wanted. If you is, want it. Is Marbury Lillard with a worst attitude? <laughs> I feel like we've done like four Lillard comps on this pod already. I don't know. He, uh, you know, it's a classic. What if he KG gets this giant contract? Yeah. Then the rules change. And Marbury is just bummed out. He knows he's never going to make nearly as much as KG and he'll never be the number one guy on the team and pushes for a trade to the Nets. And he should have just stayed with Steph. It was one of those, everyone was worse off by the trades. But, you know, I think we remember he gets, su- he goes to the Knicks. Things get super weird in a bunch of different ways. Finally ends up on that weird 09 Celtics team the where KG wasn't playing and they, he was supposed to be the missing piece. Scoring yeah, people were really excited about that. I was not. I was not excited. You weren't excited about that? Was Everybody gets way too excited about buyouts. I just feel like uh, point guards especially, they hit a point and there's no coming back. Where it's almost like running backs with Frank Gore accepted. Where when they go from level one to level two or level three, wherever... They're just, there's no rallying back. All right, you're up 10, Indiana. Dude, an hour and a half in. I know, we're going to zoom through this. (laughs) This is, uh, I could do a lot of different things here. There's one name out there that was productive. Just do it. It's the the right pick. Uh, Yeah, I, I still. It's the right pick. Second best player in a team that almost made the finals. I got to take Tuan over Sharif Abdul-Rahim. You have to. It's the right pick. Now, Tuan, 
Tuan, Tuan is the best example. Go ahead. You why don't you take the floor here for a little bit and I'll plug in in any holes. No, we, we don't need to do we don't need to do ten minutes on Anto Walker, but he made multiple All Star teams. It was second best guy on a team that almost made the finals. Like he, right. Sharif Sharif never had one memorable basketball moment. Tuan is the second best player on a team that made the Eastern Conference Finals. Oh one, right? No, no, I understand, but um, I really feel like if we're gonna knock. I mean, God, think how bad the East really was for for that stuff to happen for them because they it's were terrible. were they. We at one point were thinking they're going to play in the NBA Finals. Like we're like they're going to beat the Nets. Um, they took a two one lead in that series. They took a two one lead. That's right. They yeah. blow Game Four. They lose Game Five, and then Nets come in and finish them off in Game Six. But they, blowing Game Four was, you know, I think they could have won if they didn't blow that game. There's a version of Tuan. And I have to draft the version that we saw over 12 years. But there's a version of Tuan that they could have been his skill set was so high, but Patino immediately hated him. But then Patino was kind of like play defense and you guys can take all the bad threes you want. His shot consciousness uh, consciousness was one of the worst of any player I've ever seen in my entire life. Except for his size, he could handle, he could pass, he could do all these things, but it just, it was like it was just a little off. It was off just a little for it to actually be kind of tough to watch for really long stretches, and it wasn't a shock. You know, here's Ainge before he's the GM of the Celtics trashing his game on TNT broadcast, and the first thing he does when he gets the gig is gets Tuan out of there. But I have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for Tuan, but I'm also fully willing to admit that it was really gross for long stretches. I I likened it to a little kid, like the youngest brother in a big family who just nobody's paying attention to. Like the bonus Jonas? Yeah, like the, the fifth kid in the Sullivans in Melrose <laughs> and the youngest kid and the other kids and one's in jail and one's the football quarterback and then there's that fifth kid nobody knows wherever is and he just develops a bunch of bad habits. Tuan was just unchecked for the first five years of his NBA career, basically, and was in bad situations and developed some bad habits. But the thing that killed him was he lost his confidence with free throw shooting in 02 and 03. And once that happened, he stopped going to the line, he stopped driving to the basket, and he just became this jump shooter. And he was never like really a good shooter. What he was really good at was around the rim stuff and his passing and he had all these different tools, but once he lost his free throw shooting confidence, it, it was a little like what happened to Rondo. When Rondo just didn't want to get fouled anymore, it completely changed how he played. It's and, really weird when you notice it too. Yeah. And you usually only notice it if it's like your team and you're watching them all the time. Like I remember Pierce had this really weird stretch where he wasn't making free throws in like close late situations to the point where I went through and tracked them all. And then put it together was like, he's 80%. He's like 63% in these spots. And I remember I asked one of our guys with the Celtics, I go, Hey, have you noticed this thing with Pierce? He goes, Oh my God. And then Pierce sort of figured it out and corrected it. And he was fine again. But Tuan, Tuan would also put together these moves for his size that most guys couldn't even dream of doing. And then he just back rim it. Yeah. I've never seen a guy break people down, get open these spin moves, back you down hooks, both hands. He had all of this stuff. And it was like, it was like a math equation where it looked at you did it and you were like, oh, look how good this is. And you're like, yeah, okay, but that's outside the parentheses. So none of this works. He was a really tough, confident guy who knew where to go and what to do in a basketball court. And he goes to Miami in 06. 
and plays big minutes for them and kind of knows where to go and what to do. Wasn't afraid to take big shots. He was afraid to get fouled, obviously. He was, was not him. afraid to take big shots. There's not. nothing more, Tuan, than like up to 50 seconds to go. He brings it into the front court. He jacks it because he wants to have the dagger shot and he yeah. missed he missed him all the time. Yeah. He really wanted to he, he hero ball was something that meant a lot to him. Uh all right, four more picks left. Number eleventh pick. Who has this pick in in the actual draft? It was Golden State. Well, we'll do better than they did with that pick. <laughs> I uh I'm going Ogoskis here. You know, he Hung around a lot longer than he should have. It seemed like when he hurt, when his feet started to go out on him, it just seemed like his career was going to be over in four or five years. It ended up playing for a pretty long time. Where was he in this? He was 20th in the actual draft. But, um, you know, he he hung around and he was, for his career, was 13 and 7. He, and you thought he was toast his third year in. He didn't play yeah. that foot injury. So he missed basically his second and third season in the league, comes back at 25, and you're like, this guy's shot. And he had a nice run. Beloved teammate. So I, I think that's the right pick. Who do you have for number 12? All right. Still a lot of value out there. I know. I could do roll guy here, which is a reach. There's but he could go in the first round. There's one famous role guy left. Yeah. Although JYD, Junkyard Dog, Jerome Williams out of Georgetown. Nice little run. But uh, he's still too talented. I used to argue for Sharif Abdul-Rahim because he was, he was the poster boy for his era of big numbers, empty, he sucks. His teams weren't very good. He was part of the Gasol thing that happened on trade night where Sharif went to Atlanta and then they stunk too. Do you know off the top of your head how many playoff games Sharif Abdul-Rahim played in his entire career? I do. It was one one playoff series, six total. I used to Six make, games. I used to call it the Sharif Abdul-Rahim All-Stars for guys who just put up empty calorie stats. Like Zach Levine would be the Sharif MVP this year, right? But don't I still have to take him 12th? Yeah. Yeah. He's putting up so, stats. So, and he was good. He actually was good. And maybe it's grosser now when a guard puts up empty stats than a big. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's kind of the cool inversion of, of NBA eras here is that you had the empty calorie guys that were bigger and now the empty calorie guys are all small. Well, um, to put to put his value in perspective, you have to look at a couple of trades he was in. In 2001, He's basically traded for the rights to Paul Gasol when Paul That's was it, a rookie. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's with Jamal Tinsley. And well, kind of liked. So Atlanta's like, we could take Paul Gasol, this young kid from Spain, or we could lock in a Sharif Abdul Rahim. And Prime they actually Sharif. thought that was a smarter, smarter idea. Then in 04, he got traded with Theo Ratliff for That was the Rashid deal, wasn't it? Wesley Person and Rashid Wallace. Rashid, that's the best jersey ever. The Rashid Wallace the Atlanta Wendell. Hawks jersey because he played one game. Yeah, that'll be like the Tom Brady Bucks jersey. So <laughs> you think he's only going to play one game? <laughs> 13th pick. <laughs> so much Th disdain. I'm so mad. I get madder every day. <laughs> I was watching Falcons, Falcons Patriots Super Bowl today. I was like, how can he play for another team? This is insane. Cinema this is the greatest win anyone's ever had. 
I'm taking Kerry Kittles with the 13th pick for this will be for oh Charlotte. Kerry Kittles. Good fit know, for Charlotte. Good value. Short, shorter career than it should have been. He had some health issues, but I gotta say the Celtics went against him in two straight playoff series. I was always scared when he was open. He was one of those guys that when he missed, you were surprised. And the stats don't actually back it up. His stats are okay, but it just, he's one of those guys. There was something about how he carried himself and shot the basketball that you just felt like, oh, that's going in. 30, 38% career three point shooter. He took 3.6 a game, uh, 14 point career score, just got traded to the Clippers in 2005, and his career like basically abruptly ended. But uh, I always thought him and Kid were good together. I enjoyed that backcourt. Okay, the last pick, Dante Jones. Remember Mississippi State? I love that Final Four. Oh, yeah. Um, Malik Rose still available. Randy Livingston, go Tigers. Yeah, let's talk about some of the guys that are available because we also have Derek Fisher's available, Eric Dampier. Travis Knight is available. Little Shannon Anderson. Moochie Norris, who brought back the Afro. 10 years in, out of Georgia. Yeah. Um, Lorenzen Wright. You mentioned him. Jeff McGinnis. Jeff McGinnis. Chemistry killer. Yeah, just... (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you made the joke quicker than I did as I was about to say it out loud. Priest Lauderdale, just a couple years out of Central State University, but I'm sure a lot of dudes kind of liked him when they saw him walk into a room. Like, So who are you taking? Othella Harrington, 12 years in it. You know who I always sneaky liked was Ryan Miner out of Oklahoma. Did not play, though. Yeah, didn't make that. Uh, You got to go Derek Fisher here. You know what I'm getting? I don't want him to coach. I don't want him to be my executive, but I want him to be a guy that I trust. And for some reason, extended his career another four or five years by dribbling into everybody on open layups because he could never get a fucking shot off against anybody towards the end. And the ref gave him the call every damn time down the court. So if I know I'm getting that, if I know I'm getting, as soon as Fisher slows down, the refs are going to bail him out for another four or five years. Give me that guy. He played 18 seasons. He's fifth in this class in minutes. 32,719 minutes. The uh, advanced metrics do not like him, but came up big in a lot of big games. Well, that was... uh, More points than Marcus Camby. That was really fun. I got to ask you before we go, this was Chris Ryan uh, brought this up in a later draft that we had already recorded. Guy that you still haven't given up on, even though he's retired. Guy you're still have, keeping your fingers crossed. Who is the Jeff Green of this draft for you? <laughs> I think I said Ryan Miner, but he was busy. He had other stuff going on. You know yeah, who I always never, liked? Right. Right, right, John Wallace out of Syracuse. Because John Wallace, he's, he's a really good example of, he was going to leave after his junior year. He's a big... He's kind of like, he really is like a poor man's Derek Coleman talent and production, right? And Wallace has this great run with Syracuse. Get to the title game. And they're like, look how much this guy improved his stock. And he went 18th, which is pretty much where he was going to go after his junior year. I always thought that the John Wallace story is one of the, it wasn't even a lesson. It was specific to him. But here is this guy who comes back. Massive numbers. He was so much fun in that tournament. NBA body, face up for a big, all these things you think. He plays at Cuse. Good time, you know, just awesome production. 
and he went in the exact same spot he would have gone if he'd come out a year earlier. You left out he got game. I haven't seen that in a while. Yeah, he's in there. He got game. Him, Travis Best, and uh, and Rayon and Walter McCarty are all in there. Uh, my guy that I have not given up on yet, even though I probably should. Damon Bailey's not in that? No. <sighs> I'm going to say that John Wallace was a really good one. You know, I almost want to say Travis Knight, but I Don't really say Walter McCarty. I saw Tony Delk's 53-point game. I watched it yeah. live. It was the first year I had league pass. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I honestly, I watched it live. He was unstoppable. The crazy thing is he wasn't taking threes. I don't think he made a three in the game. It was all mid-range and up and unders and layups. And when the Celtics made the terrible Joe Johnson trade to get him and Rodney Rogers. I got to say, I, as much as I hated giving up on Joe Johnson 50 games, they had a chance to make the finals. I thought Tony Delk was going to push them to another level. I was all in. So uh, I've always enjoyed his game. He, I thought he was very Vinnie Johnson-ish. I love the Joe Johnson trade because it's the worst. And the way it's terrible. it was relayed to me was that like Tuan and Pierce were mean to him. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, so because they were mean to him, it's like, well, let's trade him for Rodney Rogers. not going to resign. And Delk was a nice piece of that. But my favorite Delk stuff is Ashley Judd. Apparently, she was legitimately into him, and Delk was, like, too shy. Tony Delk. Uh, <laughs> too shy. So we're going to be redrafting all of these drafts. We're doing 97, 98, 99 this week. All of them will be on the Book of Basketball feed, but we're going to do the, what is it, the 98 draft we're doing for your feed this week? And yeah. then, And then uh, next Sunday which will be the last one we do on this feed, uh, the 2000 draft. Yes. Which is iconic. It's just flat out iconic. So we're doing that. So anyway, you can follow those on the Book of Basketball pod. We're going to talk about some uh, current stuff right after this break. Hey, let's talk some charity stuff. Spotify is doing a really cool thing. COVID-19 music relief. You can go to the, uh, the little website that created COVID-19 music relief dot buy spotify.com and you can check out all of the cool organizations that they're affiliated with they are matching donations made by this page dollar for dollar for a collective total up to 10 million dollars that's cool so every dollar you give to one of the things that's affiliated to this they'll match it check that out really cool stuff and then since we're here i wanted to mention Helping the frontline feeding COVID-19. You can find this link on my Twitter feed. It's a partnership with the World Central Kitchen, which is doing all kinds of cool stuff. This one, the frontline thing, is trying to raise $3 million to help the heroes on the frontline every day at ERs, at hospitals, ICU, all that stuff, um, and raising money for them and for the local restaurants to make food for them. Um, I donated 100000 This is my favorite charity that I've seen so far. So check those out, and we are going back to the podcast. Coming back, we're going to do some real-world stuff for 20 minutes, then we'll go. So Trump announced today that the quarantine has now been extended until April 30th, which is five weeks from now. Rosillo, how are you holding up? 
Uh, I'm I'm good. I really am. Uh, I, I think I'll start with the serious stuff, and that would be uh, you and I are lucky from a work standpoint. So I'm really not going to complain about anything. Work doesn't really change that much for me. And friends of mine that own restaurants or are still in the service industry, working for restaurants, working for bars, you know, those are the people that. Um, and I'm not I'm not doing this as like the pandering thing, but I, I don't really have that much to complain about. I wish I could be home with my dad, uh, who's by himself, but it, it doesn't make any sense for me to fly across country. And then, you know, be on planes and then travel to even get to them. And I don't even know if I can get to them because the boats have been shut down back where I'm from. So as far as the day-to-day thing, yes, it sucks. The beaches are closed now, which really changes the dynamic of living where I live. Yes, I miss the gym, but I've been trying to order whatever I can scrounge. Everything's sold out like everywhere. It's been brutal to try to even piece this kind of stuff together. But whatever, I, you know, I went for a bike ride. I, I do stuff at home. I'm going to move my dining room table out and probably put some weights just in my living room because I don't care. Like I just, it's not like anybody's coming over. So I don't have a family. I, I don't have that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm just trying to get work done, do as many pods as we can, work on the writing stuff on the side uh, with, a, with something that I haven't been able to announce yet, which is uh, coming at some point. So as far as my day to day, I mean, I went on like a 20 mile bike ride today. I'm just trying to do the most of this. And, you know, there's, there, there's an end. We just, we don't know exactly if it'll be April 30th or not, but that's, that's what I'm doing. But I am isolating quite a bit, which I was doing for 10 years anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely made me appreciate just the basic stuff, like being at the office one day and and you're coming into your pod and we just shoot the shit for 10 minutes. It's awesome. I I haven't shot the shit with anybody in person other than my own family for two and a half solid weeks. And now we're headed toward four or five weeks more, but you know, I think it's been, it's been fun to watch people kind of get creative with how to maintain relationships. Like my, my dad's whole family was on a giant zoom call today, just all checking in for an hour and a half. And I popped in and I brought my son, he played the guitar for them. And it's stuff that you could argue we probably should have been doing anyway. If you're trying to stay connected to people, my wife has had, you know, happy hour drinks with her friends three or four times, you know, um, where they just drink, they shoot. <laughs> it should be a day. It's probably going to be a day if she's stuck with my son for one more week, but it's, it's been cool to watch people get creative with how they're trying to keep connections to one another. I think, you know, there's so much fear and fright right now as the hospital numbers and you start hearing stories and a friend of a friend or my friend who works in an ER or my friend's uncle and, these stories are either secondhand. I have some firsthand stories now of people that I know that have gotten hit by this thing. They didn't die, but, um, you know, really had a rough and scary seven, eight days. And I think, you know, the thing that's really just hard to grasp is not knowing if you're next or if somebody you love is next, you know, and I, the, the feeling of constant unease, I've just never felt this before. And you compartmentalize it a bunch of different ways. You think, you know, read books, do work, um, watch dumb shit on TV, make food, whatever. You try to take your mind off it, but it's tough to, you end up keep drifting back to like, fuck, how bad is this going to get? Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I, I, it's, it's there, but I, I, I just don't do that. You know, I, I, I'm not saying, and, and if I had a wife, I had kids, I would probably do that more often, but I'm just going like, okay, you know, let me know. Like in, in my part of Manhattan beach, like a lot of people weren't doing anything. And and I went out for a run too. And I was like, all right, this is packed. Like what, you know, so I'm not going to do this the next time. And then, 
the beaches start closing. And then I think every town's afraid to keep any beach open because then it's like, well, that beach is open. So everybody's just going to go to that one from all the other towns where the beach is closed. So, uh, you know, we could bitch about the leadership part of this, which just seems to be so incredibly petty um, that I think it's disappointing. It has to be disappointing no matter where you're at. And I'll admit in the beginning, I didn't know, you know, I was like, is this something that becomes overblown, but it's, it's kind of hard to argue against some of these numbers that, that keep going to what they're going. And it's, you know, you could sit there and say, oh, the younger people, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, when you see that map of, of people coming back from spring break and all the different people that they travel all over the United States, and I'm admitting too that at like 20 or 21 for a spring break trip that I had planned, I probably would have done it. And I think it's, it's starting to kick in a little bit. I, I think there's a thing that you said though, like, I wonder if there'll be something that comes of this that'll change the way we do things or if it'll be this like bump where everybody's really nice for like six weeks and then we just revert naturally to kind of who we've always been where you know maybe people are talking to people more now or catching up with people in a way or you're getting back to reading or you're being more creative than you were before or you're more connected to your family because you're there every single day and you'll say you know what this is kind of the way it's supposed to be it's like a power outage but we still have power you know, you remember when you were a little kid, there'd be a power outage, you'd play board games, you'd play card games, and maybe your dad, my dad would be like, this is good, this is the way it's supposed to be, family just entertaining each other the whole time. I'm like, well, we're not the Puritans, like I still want to watch TV, but that's what it feels like, the power outage with power, and part of me wonders if this will have some lasting impact that people will look at the world differently, but as soon as I start thinking that, I go, yeah, realistically, you know, if a month removed from being able to be out again, we're just going to be back to what we normally were. I think. So I turned 50 last September of all the things that have happened. Thank you. Of all the things that have happened since I've been alive, this feels like the biggest thing. And it's the most life-changing thing. I think it's the most memorable thing for so many different ways, good and bad. And, you know, I think about like the biggest things that have happened since I've been alive and they range from, you know, when, when we had the blizzard in Massachusetts in 78 and just everything shut down for three weeks and nobody knew it was coming. And it, it, all of a sudden it was the early 1900s. Nobody could get anywhere. You're just kind of stuck where you were. Uh, 9-11, things like that. This feels bigger than all that stuff. The amount of, you know, the, the amount of death and illness that's where we don't even really know yet what the real numbers are, how it's changed everybody's day-to-day lives and, I even think like how all my kids remember this. They're going to remember this as like that crazy time when all of a sudden school was done in the beginning of March and they couldn't see their friends anymore. And I almost feel like this is even bigger than it feels if that's possible. Like like 30 years from now, we're going to look back at this and be like, holy fucking shit. Can you believe what happened in 2020? And I'm not there mentally yet, but I do feel like it's bigger than it kind of feels day to day because the day to day thing, you're right. We could do 70 to 80% of this stuff you might've been doing anyway. You know, maybe you didn't have a lot of contact with people. Maybe you were able to do some of your job at home and things like that. But, um, but man, it does feel like transformative and going forward. Yeah. Is it, is this going to completely change the restaurant industry? Is this going to completely change traveling? Is this going to change how we interact when we see each other? Um, is this going to change how we do TV shows or are we going to just do a lot more remote stuff? You go from little small stick stuff to big stick stuff. I do think there's going to be lasting things from it. Yeah. I just, I always am 
trying to challenge myself to like, what do you think those things would be? And it's not even to like capitalize on it as, as an investment or anything. It's just, you know, would the, would the TV deal, like, would you be more reluctant if you're a network to pay a ton for a TV deal? And I don't even really mean, like, look, the NFL is, is one thing. It's a decade long deal. I mean, those, that's how long those deals are, you know, seven to 10 years, that kind of thing, depending on whatever it's negotiated. Cause it would start new in 2023. But I would think TV ratings are going to take a massive hit for the first few months when we're, when we're clear of this. I think people are going to travel more. I think people are going to be going out like crazy. I mean, if we allow ourselves to have a little fun with this, like if you're in your 20s and you can't meet somebody that first weekend out, like you might want to just pack up and go to another country because I think there's going to be this thing where your life was altered in a way. As you said, you think this is the biggest thing. It's probably going to be that. It's probably going to be something I look back on and be like, wow, that was crazy. Uh, 9-11 would be the only thing else that comes to mind where you just think like how shifted your day-to-day was, but that was a short period of time. It was healing and then it was moving forward from it where the unknown can make this a lot scarier. Yeah, but but think about 9-11 though. Think about how different life was after that. It completely changed how we traveled. It From a security aspect, it changed every aspect of our country and it's it's from that moment on, it's almost like a before and after, you know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. You could get on an airplane. I remember I, I was dating somebody once in Chicago and I decide last second to go fly it, to go see her. And you could get it. You could get to the airport with your suitcase, like 40 minutes before the flight, just kind of walk on, throw the thing in the overhead. And that was it, you know? And that nowadays, and I remember after, one time it was like last minute boys trip. And I showed up with cash and paid for my ticket at the counter. Right. And then just like got on the plane in New Orleans. Like that's insane. And that's, that's kind of how it went, but that's like one specific part of it post nine 11 where this is, you know, like my grandparents, I still have one grandmother that's alive luckily, but I remember kind of talking to them and being little kids. And I remember specifically like one time, I think I chucked a penny. It was just like, whatever. (laughs) She, and she freaked. And I'm thinking, why would she care so much about a penny? And she was a child of the Depression. So she always, for the rest of her life, looked at money as, as this thing that was just different than, than I did. And, and honestly, you know, it's not like I was sitting around wasting money my whole life. But it, it's just something I've never, ever forgotten about. And it was only because of an era that she grew up in. And, and I just don't know if there'll be some lasting thing. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's a stretch to say, like, oh, all of a sudden, people are going to be nicer to each other or people are going to want to eat out more to to help local businesses and all that kind of stuff. I just, I don't know. I challenge myself to try to think of what are the answers to some of the stuff will be. And I, I don't know right now it's still too early for me to kind of figure any of that stuff out. How do you think sports is going to change when we actually, let, let's say, let's go best case scenario. We make it through the next two months. They start really lifting stuff in June and everybody's really determined to get back to normal by July. And I, I do think that's an American thing specifically where there's real resiliency in situations like this and people really want things to get back to normal at some point. And sports is going to be a part of that. Do you think people will be less likely to want to go to games until they know that this thing is gone? Cause I, I actually think they will be. I think the concept of just cramming into some section at Fenway or the Staples center and the person behind you is coughing I, I don't care if they say, yeah, the Corona's gone or we're, we, we should be all good now. There's still going to be that fear for a while after this because all the scientists are saying, even if we can 
slow things down. It's never going to truly just kind of be like, okay, we're the virus is gone. We're good. This thing could circle back a bunch of times. And I do wonder if it's going to make people more scared to be like with around a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to, you might be right, but you got to weigh that against how excited people are going to have that as an option. Yeah. To go. So would you, are you telling me like the first game back, there aren't going to be a lot of people there? Um, I don't know. I I, I don't, I don't think people are going to be standing six feet away from each other the rest of their life once this thing is done, despite scientists, as you point out, that this isn't gone forever. And then, you know, the other stuff that you can read where there's a second cycle that's waiting for us once the weather gets colder again in the fall. But what I do find different in this is that don't you always feel like the NFL was kind of the lead blocker on all the social stuff for a long time where the NFL had the Kaepernick thing and it's like, well, what about the NBA? It's like, actually, we have a policy that's already been in place for a long time. I'm like, oh, and hey, what's up with concussions? And the NFL is going through all their concussion talk. And then the NBA goes, well, actually, we do have a concussion protocol, just in case any of you guys are wondering, where the NBA was almost able to draft behind the NFL taking on all the brunt of the criticism, whether it was off the field guys getting into trouble, what your policy was for domestic violence, the concussion stuff, the anthem stuff. And the NBA was always able to, able to say like, oh, by the way, while you guys are all crushing the NFL, we just want to let everybody know, here's what our policy and protocol is for all of those things. And now it's completely reversed because the NBA in the moment is dealing with this where the NFL can still kind of map this stuff out and just, you know, they can't, no one, like whenever you're calling, I'm sure you're doing the same thing. Whenever you call or text anybody, nobody knows, just like any of us removed from it, don't know. So like, if you're just a basketball fan going, I wonder what Woj knows. I wonder what all these people know. Nobody knows anything because the people we're asking don't know the answers to any of this stuff. We'll know a lot more over the next five days when we see what happens at the hospitals. I mean, the stuff that's already happening now, I can't believe. I was talking to my dad today. He was saying how, you know, Massachusetts, they really don't want people from New York to come into Massachusetts. And in some cases, police cars are pulling over cars with New York license plates because they, they're really trying to delineate like, hey, everybody stay kind of in their states. This is stuff like, we're in a territory now that we've certainly never even... I would say come close to broaching ever since I've been alive where, you know, you're, let's say you're in, I don't know, Concord and you see somebody with New York plates, you know, get out and some house they rented and people would be like, Hey, you're from New York. Why are you here? You know, when you start talking, thinking about stuff like that, it's just like, Jesus Christ, it feels like the world's just been flipped. Well, it's, it's happened where I'm from because it's all these people with second homes on the vineyard that are these great houses. And a lot of people are from New York City or Fairfield County in Connecticut, and they were flying into the vineyard. And there was this big us versus them thing, I guess, going right. on. I don't know how big it was, but I, I'd heard about it just from friends of mine that are still there. And I'm like, well, what's the story? And they go, you know, it's actually a $1,000 fine if you're driving. I'm like, on the vineyard in the winter, you can't drive your car? Like, unless it's groceries or anything medical. I'm like, you can't go to the beach and just walk around to get outside, you know, kind of for your own mental health of like, nope. And then they didn't want all the off Islanders showing up. And then, you know, the counter argument to that would be, well, if I own a house in the vineyard, I'm paying property tax year round. Like why, you know, I can't go there and get out of New York city. So, you know, being in LA, it, it feels a little different. Whereas if I were in New York city, I probably wouldn't be there right now at all. And I've even thought about getting in the car and driving to like a smaller part of, 
you know, some, some mountain town that's, that's not completely shut down. And I realized like, okay, well, what's, what's the point of that? Just to do podcasts even further isolated than, than you are now. So. Well, I, I would say LA was much better equipped for something like this than New York was. New York, you're just in the middle of people all the it's time. It's just too many. Yeah. Oh. LA, you could, you could literally be in your car or your house or your apartment or wherever every day and run into whoever you want and run into. All right. Couple, uh, couple mailbag questions, and then we're done. So we should Mitch do our recommendations too. Yeah. Mitchell Epner listened to um, our Karate Kid podcast, which I don't know if it's eligible for awards. I guess we'll find out maybe 2021, but uh, got a lot of good buzz on that. He asked, were the small ball 2020 rockets like the crane kick? Where, <laughs> where they they did it and and like Johnny Lawrence was confused by it and ended up making a poor decision. But if there's no way Danielson could have just kept doing that in tournament after tournament, at some point people were like, "Oh, I'll just plow forward and knock you over." Uh, I thought that was a really good analogy. Congrats <laughs> to him. That Steve, is such a good email. Let me just let me just think though. Let me think here for a second. Would the crane kick? Right. Okay. Yeah, it's perfect. And there's nothing else to add to it. Sorry. Steve Winters really vehemently disagreed with Reseda being, uh, Karate Kid being Reseda's apex mountain. Okay. Says, no way. It's actually Tom Petty's free falling. Because mm. uh, he has that, that line in there about it's a long day living in Reseda. There's a freeway running through the yard. And he's saying like, look, that song's, being played a quadrillion times. It would be played forever. Eventually, Karate Kid will fade away. I don't know. I'm still going with Karate Kid. Yeah, it's a line in a song that is timeless. But here we are 30 years later still talking about the Karate Kid and it's it's filmed there. And there's some real stuff you can go ahead and search where the apartment building's still there. Miyagi's hut. What would you call that? His He didn't put as much money into his work domicile as his home. Um, Not at all. But that was like something they built out of thin air in the parking lot. So I don't know. You tell me. Scott, o Scott O'Callaghan from Woburn. 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 I always said Woburn, even though I knew it was Woburn. But that's like my pronunciation dyslexia. He said. Um, yeah, that was weird. Coronavirus trade value chart. What's number one? Is it Purell? Like for for item for items you need during the Corona saga, um, a girlfriend. If there was trade, there's trades. Um, toilet paper, Lysol aerosol spray. Um, what else would be in the top ten of the coronavirus trade value chart? What's your What's your clear number one? Um, I would say mac and cheese is in the top ten. Now, Lysol disinfectant wipes are way up there. Those like 80 deep and you could just wipe down everything. I was thinking about that the other day. Hey, do you think you're going to be wiping your counters down like this two years from now? No. Two months from now? Probably not. No one's been here. So, you know, what's up? Now, I would... Uh, rice. I think rice is high. Rice good. Latex gloves. I have some, but I don't... Like, I'm not scrubbing away over here at the, at the HQ. Hmm. Uh, what about... I mean, internet doesn't really count. I, I like what he's doing here. Though. Oh, there, Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is yeah, a good one. There should be something, though, that it's just like a home run. If I said to you, a you podcast? could have... <laughs> <laughs> if 
Wi-Fi or toilet paper? You can only have Wi-Fi. one. What would you be? Wi-Fi. It's not even debatable. <laughs> All right. So wi- Wi-Fi is the Tim Duncan. <laughs> oh, man. This is just ridiculous. What are we doing with our Tony Parker's TP. Grant, Grant in St. Louis wants to know, a couple of months ago, you mentioned on a pod that Steve Ballmer is trying to build an arena in LA is the biggest story nobody was talking about. We did talk about that. Now that Ballmer has purchased the forum, what's the real story behind the headline that most people might have missed? I actually think it's pretty simple. These guys were cockblocking him for building his NBA arena. And it, it was, you know, like it was like the neighbor when you're trying to rebuild your house and the neighbor's just calling the permit police on you and you eventually have to come up with some deal with the neighbor. Um, they were just not going to let him do this until he paid something for the forum. He ends up paying $400 million just to get the forum from them. And I think my guess is eventually he knocks it down. Maybe you keep it up for while you're building the Clippers arena and you keep the forum going and you try to get four or five more years of dates or whatever. But ultimately I can't imagine why you would keep the forum there if you had this state of the art NBA arena. So I guess the symbolism of this, of Balmer building a state of the art NBA arena that would just destroy Staples Center in every conceivable way. Staples Center was 1999, 2000. And then on top of it, knocking down the forum, which is the Lakers fans version of the Boston Garden, where so many great memories happen there. Uh, this is a rare case of the Clippers pulling one off over the Lakers. The Lakers cannot be happy about this. No, I wouldn't think so. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit like if you left a show, if you were on first take, Bill, with Stephen A., and then you left, could you get mad about what they, sh- they did with the show after you left? Right. Probably not. You know, so Lakers fans can be upset about the kind of history that's in that building. But I- I'd imagine 90% of Lakers fans haven't thought about the forum in forever. So it's kind of a flex, not a weird flex, not an okay weird flex. It's a bit of a flex, but it's a flex that has more to do with his future than damaging the Lakers past. Although they should do an old school, they should do a Lakers game in the forum as like a final send off. Or, or make the final NBA game be a Clipper game in the forum. That would be like a bigger fuck you, right? I don't even know if they could do that. What about just Speedwagon? <laughs> Two sets. You're going to really like this email. It's from Adam, Adam Herman. All right. What's he up, said, Adam? He said on a recent podcast, Bill was talking about Tom Brady leaving and pointing out that part of the issue is that Brady has been so successful and has had so few checks on his ideas that it clouded his perception on what was the right thing to do. There's actually quite a bit of writing on this topic. I would specifically recommend On Grand, St- on Grand Strategy by John Lewis Gaddis. The work examines why so many leaders seem to start making stupid decisions at the height of their power. The book gives two primary causes. One is that many people are successful early due to them being innovative in some way. However, the more success they have, the more they believe that their success is from that specific behavior and not by the mindset of being innovative. The other is that these leaders often start to believe their own hype and begin assuming they will be successful just by showing up and not by the same considerations that work for them. Over time, people become more inflexible and reckless. Do you agree with this? Yeah, I I think most successful, whether you're creative, whether you're in business or whatever, you know, um, 
I think more people have one good idea than they have multiple good ideas. Like you to me are a rarity in this. Oh, thank you. No, you really are because you were a writer who's completely ahead of his time and stood out in a way others didn't. And then when people were like, what's Twitter? You're on it. And then when the podcasting thing starts, because I remember, you know what they used to always do to me? Not always, but a couple of people at ESPN used to do this to me. I'd be going through like, hey, hey guys, like every decision kind of sucks for me. And they go, you know, Bill Simmons wants to do talk radio. I'm like, really? Bill wants to do this every day? That doesn't sound right. And be like, and they said the only person he wants to do the show with is you. And I was like, really? Bill and I are going to host a radio show on ESPN radio? Like, yeah. So, okay, cool. And then obviously it would never, ever happen. But you were then right to the podcast thing before anybody really was doing that. And then, you know, you leave ESPN, you start your own company, you do all these different things. Usually for our industry, you would be the guy that wrote great columns then sucked at everything else. <laughs> or you would be the guy that was the podcast guy and was awesome and then say, I'm going to start my own company. And then you would be a fucking disaster because you were really creative, but you couldn't delegate and you couldn't figure out how to run anything operationally. I do think more people are one idea people than they are multi-platform. I'm not saying it's impossible. You're an example of it not being impossible. So why wouldn't you think you're always going to repeat your success when you've done that one great thing? Like I read one of these Zuckerberg books and I've read a couple about him. Like, yes, you had this thing and we can argue about what he stole or didn't steal or how much was his own idea, but he's had all sorts of flops and the fact that he can't figure out how to keep his thing even secure. And you're like, so why am I still listening to you again? Because you were in college and you're pissed off about a girl and you kind of stole somebody else's idea and, and had better coding. Um, what is that? What about Tom Brady, though? Oh, I forgot about that part. That was no, an steer- incredibly long answer. I like the answer, but stare to Tom Brady. Do you think he's hit this point now? Yeah, I think I think I think a lot of these guys. When you are the guy for 20 years, I think LeBron has a little of it in him. And I think we talked about this. I think those college coaches in small college towns see a god when they the look Chris at the Ber- Chris Berman corollary. Because I was thinking about it today watching Pat's Falcons, which I had to watch because it was on Fox. Brady coming back and pulling that off and the reverence that his even his teammates had for him after they came back and won that game. How are you going to be normal after that? Like You're basically like a real-life action hero in a movie. You're like Bruce Willis at the end of Die Hard, only you pulled it off at an actual football game. You defied every single odd that ever said there's no way you can go back. And he does it to win the most Super Bowls of any QB or anybody ever. At that point, that's when you when you kind of go off the rails a little bit. Even some of the stuff he's doing on Twitter now about um, immunity. It's like, does, does TB12, does he think he has the way to fight the coronavirus? Like, I, I honestly can't tell from his tweets. What's he trying to do with the immunity stuff? I'd, I'd rather just not comment. <laughs> okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's do recommendations. I mean, it's, I'm just a little worried that, you know, I, I, I respect people that have faith and feel that a, a strong faith, the man above can steer you into the right directions and help you in down times. I would never criticize that. But when you're telling me to pray this shit away, you lose me recommendations then we'll go <laughs> sorry should i have not done that no we're good tv show uh tv show you want to recommend below deck 
Uh, it's really my only guilty pleasure reality show. I've been a Below Deck fan for years. And I don't know why, because the fascination I have with the show is that everybody that works on it, whether it's the chief stew, which is the main interior bill, stew, the second stew is like her assistant, and third stew basically is in the laundry room the whole time. Then you have a chef who's kind of his own man. And anybody that's ever worked in restaurants, 85% of chefs are fucking batshit crazy. And then yeah. you have the uh, bosun, who's like the lead of the deck crew, and then the second and the third, and then the captain. So they all work on these luxury yachts. They're in the most amazing places in the world. And they all seem to be kind of annoyed that somebody else rented out the yacht for like thirty to $50,000 a night. And now they actually have to work. And I go, yeah. you do realize that it's not your boat. Right. So that's, um, that's kind of what they have a new one that's below deck yachting, which is a much smaller vessel, same number of crew. They've added horny engineer to the lineup, which is a little different. I didn't expect that twist. And there's not one, but two guitar players, which we've never had before. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm halfway through it right now. So I'm, I'm enjoying below deck. Great. I watched all American season two. What is my it? Ki my kids watched it ahead of, ahead of me. And then my wife and I caught up because we're all quarantined and what the hell else are we going to do? Nice. Um, it's just a good show. It, it, it has kind of a 90210 in 2020 vibe to it. It's a little soap opery. People in high school, everybody's way too old to be playing their character. The lead character is like <laughs> 29. He's entering his senior year in high school. Everyone's 10 years too old. Um, <laughs> Tay Diggs, it's, it, they, they're really stretching him here. I mean, he's... Is he supposed he, to be in high school? No way. Not Tay no, Diggs. he's he's the coach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just want more. You just think like, what would Denzel be like in this role? And just like the, the great actors. Because it's a really good role that he has. And he's doing his best with it. But uh, it's, a, it's a football show. It's like a... It's a little bit of a rich kid's show. It's definitely... Um, race is a huge part of the show. The downtown LA stuff is great. Uh, the first episode of season two, there's like a whole Nipsey Hussle plot that gets woven in. There's some gang stuff in there. It's all that stuff is really well handled. Like when the old shows like 90210 used to have like a gang episode, it would just be the most awkward hour of the year. Uh, this show, they put real thought and care into all that stuff. I really like it. I didn't love the season finale. And, uh, and I don't love the fact that one of the characters, Coop, has a whole hip hop career that is she's not that good. Um, it's very David Silver-esque. But for the most part, it's <laughs> 16 episodes. Yeah, yeah, 16 episodes. It kind of moves. I mean, what's funny is now, it the show took off after season one. It was a CW show, went on Netflix, show took off. Then it goes back to CW for season two. And it's kind of like people just wait for it to end up on Netflix, including my entire family. Finally shows up on Netflix. And if you look at the trending thing, Tiger King's one and all American is two and has been for the entire week. So it's good. It's, it's not that big of a commitment. I would, I, I would recommend it for you. I would be interested in your thoughts. All right. Maybe I'll check it out. There's um, some football, we, some football stuff in there. There's, there's a worker. I, I, I saw some, I, I saw some of the route running and people were very critical. Like how yeah, you and I have talked about that, that just, sports consultant guy on movies. Yeah. Like we're going to need, we're going to need to break off these routes a little crisper at the top. Yeah. There's a Welker guy who's just not Welker enough. 
And uh, yeah, if you're gonna Welker, you got to go yeah. all the way, or get Welker to actually tutor you. Uh, what uh, what book do you have for us? Okay, American Kingpin: The Epic Hunt for the Criminal Mastermind Behind Silk Road. I didn't really know that much about Silk Road because I'm not a drug guy, but this whole alternative internet, I think beyond just the dark web, and I did read about their involvement with Bitcoin, but this book uh, just came out and. Um, I can't wait to dig into it. I love I love kind of the new crime stuff. Uh, I got a couple different lanes that I'm in with books right now, but I do I, those usually go fast. Like I start them and power through it. I haven't started it yet though, so I'm not giving you the full endorsement. But we'll, we'll let you know how it goes. I just bought online. It's like the 50 year anniversary New York Magazine book that has all their covers and stories and like and for and it's like a giant coffee table book but for some reason that's my next book that I'm going to read so I got that do you read it or you just put it in the coffee table I'm going to actually read it because it's got some good stuff I'll zoom yeah. through it I believe you too so that's good thank you Um, movie new, new movie or old movie now let's go new movie first then we'll finish with old perfect platform on Netflix it looks kind of like a snow piercer in jail with a table of food I made it I about saw this is this good I saw 25 minutes of it. It's dubbed over. So you just get a ride out the dubbing and then you'll be fine. It moves. It gets you in there fast. It's, it's predictably weird. I feel like so many guys have these ideas for things and they're like, well, how are you ending it though? And you're like, ah, oh, that's how you ended it. Whatever. I haven't made it all the way through. I don't even know if it's good or not, but it's so weird. I'd <laughs> like you, <laughs> I'd like you and I. I'm doing recommendations on stuff I haven't completed yet. I'd like you and I to watch Platform this week and then regroup on this next week because it might be awful. Were you in on Tiger King or no? Yeah, loved it. Banged it out okay. real quick. Yeah. Did you? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, it's unbelievable. Tw for 25, 30 years, this is just my my wheelhouse. Those I remember, remember the Paradise Lost documentary with the stepfather, Mark Byers. He took his teeth out. They, yeah. they pinned it. They pinned it on the three Metallica kids, and but then it was clear the stepfather might have been involved. And then right around the time he became a suspect, he just decided to take all his teeth out, like had him removed surgically. It was like, well, that's weird. Now we'll never know if those bite marks are yours. And they're playing Metallica, and it, that was like the first one of these where it just took me to this really weird part of the world. And each thing that happened was weirder than the next thing. And I'm always in on all of those. As we were trying to figure out, and this might be a, a show I'm developing, so maybe I shouldn't give out the idea, but uh, as we get through what we're going through right now, I don't know if it'd be worth like everybody having to be reviewed. <laughs> like, how did you handle it? Okay, well, you're in zone one. You handled it. You did the right things. You know, maybe you went outside and had a cigarette in your driveway, but that's okay. And yeah. then we're like, wait a minute. So you did what? You worked at the Tiger King place in oklahoma and you went on spring break <laughs> yeah we're That's, gonna put you in zone six <laughs> that one lady who who the tiger chewed her arm off and she was back at work in five days super right. proud of it that's I, a guy now just just to make sure we go about it the right way uh yeah and my my favorite part of the whole thing is that joe exotic first grabbed his emt jacket and then was on the scene so he had to have changed into that jacket for the camera before that, I also think it's funny to see Carol Baskin, who was accused of killing her husband, 
at Big Cat Rescue is experiencing the wrath of the internet in a way that she never understood. Like, this isn't just people who like cat videos anymore. This is everybody yeah. else. When Cardi B calls you a bitch on Twitter, like the game just changed for you. So they're getting a little taste of what it's like right now, which is probably something they thought was in their past. Did you see the Jim Irsay video where he became Jim Exotic when he sang the Bob Seger song? That guy's unbelievable. He sang, he sang a minute of Bob Seger to cheer everyone up during the coronavirus thing. It was phenomenal. I loved it. Uh, that was probably like, better than Geffen's, Geffen's social media post to cheer everybody up. Did you yeah. see that? No. You didn't see David Geffen? It was like a drone shot of an insane yacht in this crisp golden sunset. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. 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 So. Um, Tiger King, I thought was it should have been five episodes. Seven was ambitious. All of those are that way now, though. Yeah. Would you agree with me? Like, there's uh, they so many of them it. that I'm like, dude, you could have done this in three or four. Once, Tiger King, I would watch twenty. Once Tiger King, once once Joe Exotic disappears, I'm pretty much ready to go within an hour after that. Like, because I, I need Joe Joe Exotic. He's the LeBron of the documentary. It's just tough to rally back once he's once he's out. <laughs> you didn't want to see any more Mo Williams shot attempts, <laughs> right? Uh, so you, so we did new movie. Okay, so uh, I really like the way back. Nice. I got it ready the, to go on Amazon here soon. The Affleck movie, um, sports movie, little unconventional, but um, I had some issues with it. I, I can go into them about a month from now after everybody's seen it. I what really struck me is just how good Affleck is. I, I've been a fan of Affleck for a long time. I obviously know him a little bit, and. I, I don't know what his best performance in a movie was before this. The I think town. it's well for me and you, it's the town. I think in Gone Gone Girl is a really smart performance. Um, where he's it's a little meta, the way he carries himself in that movie, the way he plays off Rosamund Pike. I, I, I had always thought that was his best kind of movie performance. He's better in this. Some I of don't all think, fears. <laughs> well, he's had some bad ones too. I don't think it's improbable that he gets nominated. I thought he was really no affecting. I thought he was really affecting really good. And it's clearly crossing the beams with him, the character he's playing and what he's like in real life. There's a lot of baggage he brings to it that I think Brad Pitt could have played this guy. And that's about it. But I think the baggage is really important. Yeah. I think it, it, it merges real life and, the sports movie character in a way that is unusual and probably shouldn't have worked, but I thought it worked really well. And I, th I just thought it was a really well done movie. The guy who did it did warrior, which is uh, a great one. He did win, win. I think he did win, win. Um, Warrior's awesome. I mean, Warriors yeah. an unbelievable Gavin O'Connor. So I'm all in on Gavin O'Connor. I I'm with you on Affleck. I think he's actually become criminally underrated. Everybody has bad movies, but, uh, He's he's so good in Gone Girl. You know why he's so good in Gone Girl? If you hadn't read the book, if you didn't know anything about that movie, he's so perfect at playing in between he did it, he didn't do it, he did it, he didn't do it. Like he's just I think it's it's kind of like a musician who plays within the notes, you know, instead of just railing away as fast as you can in a guitar or a trumpet, all that kind right. of stuff, but like finding a way to like play in between the music. Uh and I don't know that much about playing. I, I like music, but that's what Affleck is doing to Gone Girl. I think he's terrific. So I look, he's in, he's almost automatic for me that I would check out one of his movies at this point. So I'm with you. Old chasing, movie? chasing Amy was the uh, other one for him that I thought he was really good in. 
that, that's a movie with a lot of flaws, but he's great in that movie. Old yep. movie, go. Say anything. This is more than just a meme, kids. It's probably the first romantic comedy that um, guys liked universally. Like you, you normally wouldn't like this kind of movie being you or I when we were younger. Um, you may watch it or whatever, but this one like was different. Um, it was Cusack is older than me when this movie came out, but it it just hit all these perfect tones of kind of this lost guy. And this line alone, it's you know, just look, everybody that sees the the guy holding the stereo up outside, and it was Peter Gabriel music. That's actually not just a funny meme. It's one of the best movies of that of that time because it's funny, it's dramatic, it's it's sad, it's a relationship. Cusack's so good back then. And he's sitting there and he's dating this daughter and he's at dinner with the father. And Cusack's character, Lloyd, says, A career? I've thought about this quite a bit, sir. And I have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed or buy anything sold or processed or repair anything sold, bought, or processed as a career. I don't want to do that. My father's in the army. He wants me to join but I can't work for that corporation. So what I've been doing lately is kickboxing, which is a new sport. As far as career longevity, I don't really know. I can't figure it all out tonight, sir. So I'm just going to hang with your daughter. It's fucking brilliant writing. Brilliant. And, you know, I'm a little more successful now than Lloyd was, but that spoke to me then. It still speaks to me now. So again, check that one out if you're a younger dude right now. It's a good date movie too, when you're allowed to go on those again. It's an excellent movie. It's 31 years old. It's Cameron Crowe. I I love the his crazy friend who's still obsessed with the boyfriend who dumped her, Joe. <laughs> she sings the Joe Lies. Joe <laughs> Lies, Joe yeah. Lies song fucking kills me. <laughs> really good ending. Uh, yep. Good good John Mahoney, too. I think that was uh, the, you know, everyone knows him from Frasier, but that was, I always knew him from that movie in Reality Bites as like the two John Mahoney movies. I'm in on those. Uh, for my old movie, my son loves these 80s movies. Like he loved, he was so fired up when he did Karate Kid. He um he loves Can't Buy Me Love. That was Can't Buy Me I Love. I showed them awesome. that. I would do yeah, that at Rewatchable. Oh, would you? I have a lot of thoughts. We'd have to get America's thoughts on no, that. No, we could do that because I have I have good uh Cindy Mancini stories from when she spent a summer in Burlington. No longer oh, with wow. us. Wow. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. So I Can't Buy Me Love. Wait, I guess I could just do that one. But so we, we've been kind of plowing through the 80s. And it's funny, they're not much different than the movies that like Netflix makes now, like the To All the Boys I Love Before. It's all the same blueprint that was created in the 80s. So we was talking, I was telling him, he asked who won the movie when we did the rewatchables for Karate Kid. And I said, you know, Johnny, the guy who played Johnny Lawrence, we decided won the movie. And he's like, oh, yeah, Johnny Lawrence. He's like, oh, did you give it to him because he's never been in another movie? And I was like, no, he actually was in two other movies where he's like a dick, including just one of the guys, which is a classic. I was like, what's that? So we watched it on Saturday night. Oh, man. Just one of the guys. It's on Amazon. You have to rent it. Um, it's incredible. And in fact, I know we talked about it a tiny bit on the rewatchables. I have no idea why the Karate Kid, Teen Wolf, Breakfast Club, a couple of these others lived on and just one of the guys like died. 
but it is an unbelievable rewatch the, there's sexism in it. Um, the, the little brother was the one that stole the show for my son. He just could not he, the little brother absolutely slayed him played by Billy Jacoby. Uh, I don't know. Jacko and I used to talk about him all the time. No wondering What happened? Well, it was just like, what, why was it Billy Jacoby? One of the biggest stars coming out of the eighties. We'll never have an answer. I don't know, but he's great in this movie. And then Joyce Heiser, who dated Bruce Springsteen and Warren Beatty in real life, according to the Wikipedia search I did for her. Uh, Go girl. This was her, her one starring role, and she's great in it too. But it's it's an old 80s movie that I promise if you watch it, um, you'll get a kick out of for some way. There's no way it won't hold your attention. Just one of the guys. I need to watch it again because it's been a while for myself as well. It's great. Well, you're in the pitch black now on our on our feed. So that means it's time to go. Rosillo, we can hear the 1998 redraft on your feed this week, along with at least one other podcast. And the 97 redraft will be on the uh, Book of Basketball podcast. So we're at least going through 2000. Then I think probably like to, probably to 2003. And then we'll see if we keep going after that. Uh, stay safe. Good to see you and talk to you as always. And uh, we'll talk to you next Sunday. Yeah, you too. Same deal, family, everybody out there. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks to uh, ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Rosillo. Don't forget, we'll be putting up some of these redrafts exclusively on the Book of Basketball podcast. So subscribe there. 98 will be on Rosillo's feed as well. And we're going to keep having fun with this gimmick because what the hell else are we going to talk about? And that's it. Rewatchable is coming tomorrow night with uh, Shea Serrano and myself. Fast and Furious 7. Enjoy the rest of the day. Stay away from people. Take care of yourself. And we'll be back later in the week.